All right, let's talk about longevity for a second. Did you know that 75 to 100% of brain autopsies from Alzheimer's brain banks were found to have Lyme disease? Meaning 75 to 100% of people who died from Alzheimer's, a neurodegenerative disease, when their brains were autopsied, they found the bacteria that is responsible for Lyme disease, known as Borrelia burgdorferi. And these findings are consistent across multiple brain banks and were even confirmed in a recent Harvard review. This makes a very strong case that Alzheimer's, dementia, perhaps to some degree Parkinson's, although there's a stronger pesticide connection there, and cognitive decline may be connected to the bacteria that causes Lyme disease and that bacteria more specifically getting into the brain. There's a lot of talk in the health and biohacking space about longevity. And so-and-so thinks they're going to live to 180, yet somehow looks old for their age. I'm not trying to be a dick here. I'm just stating the obvious. And other people are suggesting molecules like NAD or NMN or practicing fasting to activate longevity pathways. There's even physicians that are talking about using drugs like rapamycin that are known to inhibit and suppress the immune system and how those are being used for longevity by dampening a growth pathway known as mTOR, which seems a little bit counterintuitive, how suppressing the immune system could actually make you live longer. I don't know. We'll see on that one. And this is great and all, but I think we need to kind of address the elephant in the room here. And that is that 80% of us, which means four out of every five people are going to die from just one of three things, cancer, heart disease, or neurodegenerative disease, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia. That means if you don't know what actually causes cancer, heart disease, neurodegenerative disease, how to test for it because your doctor doesn't, and how to get rid of them and bring the body back into balance, then the odds are you're going to be in that 80% of people dying from one of those three things. And in that case, the only thing we're really biohacking with all these longevity supplements and practices, it's our imagination. I'm not trying to be a dick here. I'm just, I feel like we need to have this conversation and get it out in the open. So this is why I've created our Apex Longevity Code coaching program, where we test you for over 50 different types of cancer. We test you for Lyme disease, parasites, yeast and fungal infections that have been connected to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, dementia, cognitive decline, even brain fog and chronic fatigue. And we utilize gold standard labs to assess your cardiovascular and cerebrovascular risk factors, all in one fell swoop, giving you the peace of mind that comes with knowing exactly what's going on in your body and that you are minimizing your risk of the things that kill 80% of people. Again, cancer, heart disease, and neurodegenerative disease. I'll then customize you a program to give you complete control of your longevity and empower you to stay healthy for life. But we don't stop there. But wait, there's more. We'll also measure your biological age. That's different from your chronological age. Your biological age is how old you are at the cellular level and your rate of aging. And then tailor your biohacked game plan so you not only look and feel younger, but you are actually younger biologically at the cellular level by using leading edge tools and practices personalized and customized for you. This is for men over 30 who have more money than time, who want to increase both their lifespan 
and their health span and take control of their body, mind, future, and health. It's especially powerful if you want more energy, a better body, a sharper mind, deeper, more restful sleep, heightened libido, to look years younger, and to feel like you're truly firing on all cylinders. I'm only offering this to a few men who see the value in getting this handled and are in a position to start right away. To be clear, I don't practice medicine. More specifically, I don't examine, diagnose, treat, offer to treat, cure, or attempt to cure any physical or mental disease or disorder. I don't recommend or prescribe any medications or pharmaceutical drugs or recommend any changes in dosages of legally prescribed medications or drugs. The Western medical system has that stuff covered, and it would be illegal for anyone to engage in those practices without a medical license. I use science-based labs to gather data and to quantify your health and risk of all-cause mortality, then provide you with a personalized game plan to live better, longer. All of this so that you're in a better position than the vast majority of people who statistics show will end up dying from either cancer, heart disease, or neurodegenerative disease. So if you're interested in seeing if you're a fit for the Longevity Code coaching program, text your full name and the reason you'd like to be a part of it to 847-989-3743. You can also go to biohackercoaching.com and book a time to talk with myself or someone from my team. That number again is 847-989-3743. And the website is biohackercoaching.com. Thanks for your time. Alex Zach, welcome to the Biohacking Secret Show. Thank you for having me, man. I'm pumped to talk about virology and vaccines, how belief impacts health, uh, water, and specifically the way forward. I came across like you, your mom, and, and your family because in early 2020, when a lot of this stuff was initially going down, there weren't many people speaking up or questioning the mainstream narrative, and you guys were. And I, I recognized the courage that that took and the fact that you guys were part of a very small group of leaders who were given some of the people who, who saw that something wasn't right, um, a, a little bit more intel and uh, a, a path in order to understand the bigger picture of, of what was taking place. So I really appreciate that. And I'm excited for our conversation today. Before we kind of get into the virology and vaccines and some of that other stuff, maybe you could give us a little bit of your backstory, uh, your family and how you got here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this could be like a six part podcast in and of itself. So I'll summarize it as quickly as I can. The, uh, I, I grew up in a pretty chaotic and abusive environment. And, you know, my, my dad was just repeating patterns of generational abuse and trauma. And my mom was also doing the same, very codependent, um, sort of neglectful of myself and my siblings and more focused on trying to fix my dad and, and fix their relationship. But in codependency, that's not healthy either. So th naturally their relationship was just super um, up and down and chaotic and that bled over onto us as kids quite a bit. And <clears throat> when I was 13, my dad went to rehab and my mom um, went to see a psychiatrist just because of the trauma that, you know, my parents' relationship caused. And that psychiatrist did not ask her about anything to do with nutrition, anything to do with mindfulness, anything to do with, um, you know, her, her spiritual practices. She simply 
asked her or just gave her a survey to fill out. And then based on that survey, prescribed her multiple benzodiazepines and SSRIs. And this was in 2007. And then over the course of the next nearly 10 years, my mom's health spiraled downward very fast. And it was, there, there were moments that she would appear to be normal. And we were like, oh my God, the drugs are working amazing. And then inevitably she would have a trajectory downward that was, you know, super traumatic for us, especially as this continued over the course of nine years, because we would get our hopes up that our mom would be back. And then in her, you know, down moments, she was hallucinating, not leaving her room for two weeks at a time, hardly sleeping, um, in and out of psych hospitals, multiple suicide attempts. It was, it was really, really dark. And I was a senior at West at West Point in 2016. And at the time, Dr. Kelly Brogan still had a practice in New York, West Point's in New York. So my mom happened to be seeing a therapist at the time who was reading A Mind of Your Own by Dr. Kelly Brogan. And this therapist recommended that my mom make an appointment with Kelly. So it was kind of just like the stars aligned. And the week after my West Point graduation, my mom went to go see Kelly. And for anyone who knows Dr. Kelly Brogan, her approach is very holistic, very natural, completely opposes the use of psych meds or pharmaceuticals pretty much altogether. And she had essentially told my mom that, Ali, you're not bipolar. You're not this, you're not that. You're not any of these labels. These psych meds are causing you to be worse. You need to get off of them. You need to taper off of them and, um, you know, adopt this more natural approach to health and become more mindful and heal your trauma. And, after seeing Kelly, my mom began implementing what Kelly brought to her. And in a matter of three to four months, my mom's health began changing drastically. And we started seeing sides of my mom that we hadn't seen in nearly 10 years. And so that was a big shock to me and to my wife, who I had just married. And my wife, uh, nearly 10 years prior, was diagnosed with lupus and rheumatoid arthritis in and out of um, multiple rheumatologist offices. And uh, you know, was told that she'd always be chronically ill and that she'd need to be on multiple immunosuppressive drugs and that they could only manage the pain at this point. And so my wife's ESR, her SED rates, which is like the inflammation levels in your blood were off the charts. And then when she was on some of these, you know, immunosuppressive drugs, ironically, hydroxychloroquine being one of them, her SED rates dropped down to, you know, like, like 50 which is still way above normal. Normal is said to be between 22 and 28. And so they're still high. And then of course, these drugs that she was on led to side effects, which led to her being prescribed multiple other drugs, which eventually led to her being on some form of psych drugs too. And, um, you know, she began tapering off of these medications and adopting this very natural approach to health. And in a matter of a few months, my wife was like, I feel better than I felt ever let's go get my blood work tested at the rheumatologist's office. And she was completely off all of her medications at this point. And we got her blood work done and her ESR, her SED rates were down in the normal range for the first time in nearly 10 years. And the doctor was like, Oh, it looks like the drugs that you're on are working for you now. This is amazing. She was like, I'm not on any drugs at all. And, uh, he was like, okay, well, it looks like you don't need me anymore. And it was, that was that. And I was just like, what, like, how does, how's this dude not intellectually curious to how, he, she's not on any of these drugs and she's better than she's been in 10 years. Mm -hmm. And, 
you know, then, and then seeing the situation with my mom and just looking at like, how the hell could these experts who two people that I love dearly were under the care of have gotten it so wrong. And it was multiple people for both of them that got mm-hmm. it completely wrong in this very simple, natural approach to health is what is helping them heal. So inevitably that led me down a path of questioning the pharmaceutical industry, which started sort of on the psych drugs and, um, you know, antibiotics side of things, and then led me down to vaccines, which then led me to the relationship between the vaccine industry and the government, which led me to government corruption, which led me to 9-11, which led me to sort of every rabbit hole. And Mm -hmm. I just commissioned as an officer in the army. So fast forward to the beginning of 2020. This was, this was, you you had just joined the army essentially after after West Point. Now you're seeing the 9/11, and you're like, okay, the Dude, whole yeah. that we went to war was yes. clearly like you see Building Seven just fall on its own, and yes, you're like, what the fuck yeah. am I involved with right now? Yeah. Am I a yeah, exactly. No, exactly that, man. So I've talked to so many military guys that have have had the same thing. Either like when they're overseas, they're like, this isn't at all what yeah. I was told it was going to be, or afterwards, you know, yeah. when they after they've gone to do what they were told they were going to do and it wasn't that they're like and bless those guys because the trauma yeah. that they've experienced and the cognitive mm-hmm. distance that they've had to face thank god i never had to deploy but for my i have friends who have deployed i have friends who have deployed and been in combat and have woken up to the truth about 9-11 and the global war on terror and they know it's all bullshit and mm-hmm. that's a that's a lot of cognitive distance to face and thank god it's, i never had to deal with any of that it's really heavy and like and, and i sort of try to keep one foot in each camp where I have massive respect for the people whose hearts are in the right place. And they're, they're going to it, w- what they believe is defend, you know, our freedom and our sovereignty. You know, there's, there's a lot of courage there. Um, there's also part of me where like, as we go down some of the rabbit holes that you and I are going to enjoy during this conversation, it gets, it gets kind of interesting, especially at a spiritual level where you're like, how many of these wars are actually blood sacrifices? Yeah. Yeah, you know where where these narratives are cooked up to get a whole bunch of people to kill each other, yeah. and it's not about anything that we're told, you mm-hmm. know. So I, I just kind of wanted to seed that, and we can we can possibly come back to that later. But those those have been some of the questions that I've been asking as the nine eleven narrative falls apart, as the vaccine narrative falls apart, as you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's tough because I don't have any substantiating evidence or, or enough substantiating evidence to say that those are blood sacrifices, although I do believe that. And that's where I try to really distinguish between belief and and knowing and what's repeatable and observable in reality. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and uh, we'll, we'll probably get into that with regards to virology here in a bit, but um, mm-hmm. dude, it was, it was cognitive dissonance for me to face that knowing that I just commissioned as an officer in the army and then I'm waking up to the fraud of everything going on. And so a lot of my friends, I, I sort of kept my perceptions, my newfound perceptions secret because I felt ashamed and I wanted to be a part of the group, so to speak. Right. So mm-hmm. a lot of my West Point friends, I would touch on, you know, ask questions like, God, I remember being in the car with two of my West Point classmates and I was reading an article in the back talking about adjuvants that are using vaccines and how they hadn't been tested for safety when injected specifically. 
I would bring it up like, guys, did you know this? And like, you know, they just kind of like, yeah, that sounds nuts. And then, you know, mm-hmm. change subject. You're or, talking about things like thimerosal and, uh, and well, talking al- about aluminum hydroxide and aluminum, aluminum. phosphate specifically mm-hmm. um, as and, the and, adjuvants. Yep. And then, yeah. and then you have the, the issues with possible, you know, fetal cells and that sort of thing. It gets oh, very... dude, there's so, there's so many things and the implications of injecting foreign genetic material into human beings is like, yeah, there's that could even venture into a conversation about the the, the trans agenda and people having mm-hmm. heightened amount of gender dysphoria, and then there's psych drugs tied into that as well, and studies that have done been done on frogs that mm-hmm. you know. So, yeah. But, we'll, but anyway, we'll, I, yeah, we'll we'll go we'll go there possibly yeah, with some of, like some of the stealth the stealth trauma that we don't even realize oh, is, has has become normalized. Yeah, 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 and so and so I I sort of hid these perceptions. And, and had them had all this knowledge and was interested in this research. Cause once you start exploring, it's like you get, get to what you think is the end of the rabbit hole. And then another one opens up and you're like, Oh my mm-hmm. God, this is like never ending. Mm-hmm. And so when, when COVID COVID hit, mm-hmm. say that in air quotes for the people listening, I already had been through, um, you know, gaslight, I, I'd already dealt with gaslighting manipulation tactics growing up by way of just my familial trauma I had already seen the harms of the pharmaceutical industry and the healing power of a natural approach to health. And I saw this already being demonized at the very beginning of this whole charade. So in in the very, very beginning of all this, I knew that it was a fraud. Although I will say that I fell for the Chinese propaganda, meaning the, the videos of people falling dead in the streets suddenly, I was like, mm-hmm. oh my God, they actually created a bioweapon in a lab that they've unleashed and they're, you know, it's going to kill millions and millions and millions and millions of people. And mm-hmm. this was prior to lockdowns, prior to anything. This was around December of 2019 that I was watching this happen. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I knew that the result would be mandatory vaccines for all people. And I knew that the vaccines were going to be extremely poisonous. I knew all other vaccines are poisonous too, but I knew that if they're going to use this thing that this one was going to be particularly toxic relative was to was ones. like agenda 21 already on your radar at that point in time yes it was like my my mom and i had had several conversations about that and um yeah we were we were fully knowledgeable on that too okay so and you were like it, all right it was this, originally this, agenda, this is it it is happening yeah and it was originally the agenda i think set forth by the clintons called healthy people 2020 that we were very wary of that then turned into agenda 2030 and obviously the, the great reset now with COVID, but I was already aware of all that stuff. But the one thing that I was not aware of was the lie of germ theory, because like I said, I fell for the propaganda that this was going to be, that this was a bioweapon that was going to kill millions and millions and millions of people. And then as I started to observe things happening when this quote hit in the United States or when the, the, the media said that it is now there's outbreaks in the United States, I was watching around me just like everyone else. And I was like, this isn't adding up whatsoever. And where some people sort of took that as, oh, well, this bioweapon that they created in a lab sucked and it wasn't as deadly as they wanted it to be. And they'll probably cook up newer variants that will be. I, at the time, had come across two videos that piqued my interest. And one was um, Dr. Tom Cowan giving a presentation in front of people. And he started talking about how uh, he, he used an analogy for dolphins off, yeah, falling dolphins video. off the coast. Yeah, and and essentially what he said in the video was, if you were following dolphins off the coast of Florida 
and you saw that the dolphins began uh, getting sick and, and dying, what would be your first response? And he was essentially said that it'd be who put some shit in the water. It wouldn't be what virus killed the dolphins. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's really interesting. Why don't we ever? Yeah. You don't go looking that- at the dolphins DNA. You don't necessarily yeah, even yeah. check the dolphins blood work. You're like, there's, there's some shit in the water that's making yeah. them sick. Exactly. And so I was like, why don't we apply that same logic to human beings? And I started like thinking of examples and I was like, oh my God, virtually every, issue that animals deal with. And of course they do talk about some viral illnesses and animals. Um, I'm happy to get to that later, but, but the point is I started looking at this and I was like, overwhelmingly it's that animals are dealing with environmental poisons or malnutrition. And Mm -hmm. why aren't we applying that same logic to human beings? Then I saw another video of David Icke on London Real, and he referenced Andy Kaufman and how there is no virus. And that piqued my interest given the context of this and then further context, we had just moved out of military housing onto um, li- living off post, which means living off the military base. And the military housing, some of my wife's autoimmune symptoms started returning for the first time ever. Mm. And then we realized that there was encapsulated lead paint and there was insane amounts of black mold, which then the black mold was decomposing the building materials. And this was a very old building, which was then leaching the lead paint, which led to my wife's symptoms returning out of nowhere. It's like, oh my God, this makes total sense terrain. So I started looking at terrain. I started looking at the no virus thing. And there's tons of cognitive dissonance for me with that because Epstein-Barr virus is said to be the cause of a lot of autoimmune issues. And we thought Epstein-Barr virus was the cause of my wife's autoimmune issues. And so I had to my wife and I both had to sort through our own cognitive dissonance in that Epstein-Barr virus has never been proven to exist, nor has it been proven to be the cause of any sort of disease whatsoever. So in early 2022, almost out of nowhere, I started experiencing massive changes in my body and mental health. My hair was thinning and falling out faster than ever before. I was experiencing mood fluctuations, I was putting on body fat, losing strength and muscle mass, was even having a harder time remembering certain people's names and things that I knew I knew. My face looked older and I had more wrinkles and there was a noticeable decrease in my sex drive. And then one of the guests that I had on our podcast introduced me to a product called BioPro Plus that naturally boosts your IGF-1 and human growth hormone levels. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and check out episode 265 on how to increase HGH, boost libido, and experience 68% better recovery with Dustin Baker. BioPro Plus contains a combination of powerful natural ingredients for boosting HGH, human growth hormone, and IGF-1, like elk antler, tribulus, and shilajit, all in their purest and most potent forms. What's interesting is elk antlers are the only mammalian appendage capable of continuous regeneration. These antlers grow an inch or more per day and have the fastest growth rate of any organ in the animal kingdom. I started taking one glass vial every morning and holding it under my tongue for 90 seconds before swallowing. And before I'd even finished my first kit, I was getting compliments on my skin and how I looked five to 10 years younger. You can even go back and look at some of my social media videos from earlier this year, and you'll see how big of a difference there is. Since then, my energy has increased. I feel more motivated. My libido and sex drive came back. I've been losing fat. I'm stronger and recovering faster from my workouts, and my hair is coming in 
thicker and it even stopped falling out. If my story resonates with you, I highly recommend you try BioPro Plus for yourself. When you feel it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And for a limited time, you can save $30 on your order by going to bioproteintech.com and entering discount code biohacks. That's B-I-O-P-R-O-T-E-I-N-T-E-C-H.com and discount code B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S. Now, back to the show. There's so many different things we could touch on. First off, I think it's important to mention, you know, the the role environment plays in yeah. uh, health and illness. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of evidence now. I mean, for a while, I, I've I've worked with a lot of clients that joined our coaching program because they thought they had mold toxicity. Mm-hmm. And I've never, ever seen someone get better from remediating the mold in their home. Mm-hmm. Never. And, and that includes spending $20,000, $30,000 to get rid of it. And all of the symptoms persist, Right. There's a growing body of evidence that that mold is actually nature's cleanup crew that's going in and the mold finds these toxic building materials. You add a little bit of moisture and the mold starts actually breaking them down into organic compounds. Yes. And we see the mold. I'm so happy you said that because I've had so many conversations with people where they're um, not understanding of that. And it's so hard to have a conversation at that point because that is the case. And that's why I said specifically it's not the mold that was the issue. It's the molds decomposing the building materials, freaking mm-hmm. encapsulated lead paint and God knows what else. Mm-hmm. Uh, this building was made in the 1930s and they've done multiple renovations and it's military housing, which is shit. So mm-hmm. toxins everywhere that the mold is simply there as the cleanup crew, just like you said. Exactly. And then you layer in, uh, Dr. Diedrich Klingart brought to my attention years ago that mold in the in, in a high EMF environment, an, an environment of high wireless electricity produces more biotoxins. Mm-hmm. And realistically, most of the time when someone is sick from mold, I think that a strong case could be made that on some level, electrical illness is contributing. Yeah, of course. I completely agree with that. I, I forget which studies exactly, but there's there's been studies where they've taken certain types of black mold and certain types of bacteria and set them next to a you know wireless device of some sorts, and mm-hmm. the mold and the and the bacteria proliferate at exponential rates, but in a like in, in, in a form that they're not typically seen in, I guess, is mm-hmm. the best way to describe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a ton of those. And even now you're seeing you're seeing some of the places that they've put up towers and different, um, you know, different, I'm trying not to say 5G. Instead of 5G, I'll say 57. Millimeter wave. Millimeter waves. Yeah, they put up these millimeter wave towers and you see the trees and, and life dying around them. Yep. Right? So yep. It, it's, why do we think that our cells would respond differently? This is clearly not something that is life affirming. It, 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 it's something that causes issues for for all uh, biological creatures. Now, um, okay, so I wanted to mention that, and then the other thing was, um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess what what did you guys start to do to kind of remedy the situation, and 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 what was you know what were some of the, especially with the Kelly Brogan situation too. I'm curious because there's a lot of people that like clean up their nutrition, they start working out, uh, they're they're supplementing with things like 5-HTP or Sammy or St. John's Wort. They're trying to take natural versions of these antidepressants because they believe that there is an underlying brain chemistry issue. Yeah. And you're saying now there's evidence that that's not even the case. And and yeah. I've seen some of those studies as well. Maybe we could elaborate that on that because I think we got to kind of have a foundation for people to understand where we're coming from and how some of these things work 
um, in, in order for people to be able to apply this to their own lives. Yeah. So, I mean, you could bring epigenetics into this discussion as well, where I think that certain traumatic experiences may trigger certain genetics to um, start expressing in a certain way. That mm -hmm. That is a possibility. But again, epigenetics, those those triggers can turn off, so to speak. So it's, it's the trauma that led to that epigenetic trigger. Mm -hmm. And it's not the, that you have a chemistry issue in your brain. Mm -hmm. um, like looking at what led to my mom feeling symptoms of depression and anxiety was absolutely a result of what she experienced through her relationship with my dad and, and also through her childhood prior to my dad that she mm -hmm. had never dealt with. And she was just masking those symptoms with the psych drugs. Mm -hmm. And this is actually why I have somewhat of an issue with functional medicine. And this is more speaking to the physical side of symptoms, but it relates both physically and in, in the mental side of things is that I see a lot of people in the holistic health, natural health communities that are simply taking the same exact mindset yeah. that allopathic medicine has of masking symptoms with pharmaceuticals. And yeah. they will then mask the same symptoms with yeah. herbs or supplements or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm of the mindset that it's most important to get to the root cause as best as you possibly can. And is that challenging? Fuck yeah, it can be. Sorry mm -hmm. for my language. But yeah, that can be very challenging. Is it sometimes helpful to use these things to alleviate symptoms to some degree. Yeah, I would say so, especially like in an acute or emergency situation, of course, right? If you have a baby who's like screaming, crying in pain, managing symptoms at that point in order to then begin to address the root may be necessary. But when you're just perpetually masking symptoms, mm -hmm. I think that allows dis-ease, whether physical or mental, to fester in the background to the point that it gets to a boiling point and then you have a much, much, much worse situation. And then we also have a scenario where so many of these pharmaceutical companies, and, and we'll talk later if you feel that pharmaceuticals are, should be categorically avoided, but many of those same companies manufacture the individual ingredients that are used in supplements. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there's, there's a lot of overlap between the pharmaceutical industry and the supplement industry. And it's it, what, what some people do, especially in the functional space, as you mentioned, is they just swap pharmaceuticals for supplements yeah. and, and, you know, oh, just take these for the rest of your life now. Yep. Yeah, man. And I, I've also come to the perception on that same note that even, even physical symptoms of disease have, for the most part, an underlying emotional uh, or, or psycho-spiritual element to them that needs to be addressed. And that may mm -hmm. not always be the case. That's not, that's not an exclusive black and white statement. But I think for the most part, there is an underlying emotional or psycho-spiritual issue that needs to be addressed. And I think that uh, natural approaches to health completely miss the boat on that as well, aside from something that I've become really interested in lately. And I don't know if you're familiar with uh, German New Medicine, but Dr. Melissa Sell is a really good friend of mine. And German New Medicine essentially says that every physical expression of symptoms can be traced back to a specific, across everyone, a specific biological conflict that that individual experienced and it relates like once one symptom will always relate to the exact same emotional trauma and from what i've seen and what melissa has seen as a germany medicine practitioner it's always spot on hmm. 
Interesting. So how did how did your wife with her um, autoimmune condition and your mom, like besides nutrition and and exercise and perhaps some strategic supplementation, like how did they address their trauma and start regulating their immune system where, you know, in the case of your wife, it, it was no longer attacking healthy cells? Yeah, for, <clears throat> so I'm trying to be careful in this because my perceptions is that my mom is still in the process of, of addressing those emotional things. It can and, be really hard getting off antidepressants. Like I, yeah. I just, for, for our listeners, I was put on Prozac at 19 and I've thought a lot about what went into that. It, it, it happened, you know, I moved into our fraternity. I joined like the soccer house. I played club soccer at U of I and Wait, university the, of Idaho. University of Illinois in Champaign. Oh, right, dang, yeah, I was going to say, my dad used to be a college basketball coach at University oh, of Idaho. So. Really? No kidding. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the year I moved into the fraternity, same year, you know, th this is just, you know, you you reflect on it, but same year that Wi-Fi came out. And I remember being down there early to train for soccer and to like get the fraternity cleaned up. And I had the most impossible chronic fatigue that I'd never experienced in my life before. I was like passing out at 11 AM. I would, I would have to sneak off to different parts of the house and, and lay down. Cause like, I couldn't even keep my eyes open. It was almost like I'd become narcoleptic. And, you know, shortly thereafter I'm experiencing depression and like, yeah, there was a little bit of beer drinking and stuff. I was in college, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything outrageous. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, I explained to my family what I was feeling and, you know, the answer was antidepressants. Yeah. And, and shortly thereafter, you know, you start experiencing sexual side effects. I go from a guy with a super high sex drive and, 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 you know, feeling pretty normal to like, oh, wow, now I feel like my dick doesn't work yeah. and I'm in college. What's going on with this? You know, and, and, and I've, I've gone to Costa Rica and taken ayahuasca. I've done transcranial magnetic stimulation, all sorts of different things to get off of these drugs, especially when you find out that, that many of them contain fluoride, which can then yeah. manifest as aluminum in the brain. Like it goes, it goes really, really deep. So I, I respect the fight that your mom is, is, is in and the fact that she's doing that. And I also recognize that it's not easy no. from, from someone who's been, who's been on and off of this stuff, uh, a lot over, over the past few decades. Yeah. And, and for her, she has been completely off of psych drugs now for at least five years. Mm -hmm. And her, I don't want to say it, I hesitate to say issue. It's her um, struggle is, is dealing with the intense trauma that she has dealt with. And I don't, mm -hmm. I don't want to speak for her, but I think that um, she is, just now getting to the point of, of really addressing some of those things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, so that's, that's my mom's side of things. And I think, like I said, you will always deal with these physical symptoms until you address the underlying emotional piece to them. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with my wife and, and me both, I'll speak for both of us here. It, it's going back and reparenting yourself in those moments that you needed a parent um, to show up the way that a parent is supposed to with love and compassion and providing you security. So for me, that looked like getting into a meditative state and actually going back to some of those traumatic experiences that I had experienced and being the man that I needed at that point in time, whether that was standing up to someone who was, you know, beating the shit out of me. Um, Cause I dealt with a lot of, 
physical abuse when I was, when I was a kid, um, or, you know, being there to just console little Alec. And that was really profound for me. And then like other tools, like emotional freedom technique were very, very impactful for me. And that's like, like, like tapping. Yeah. Meridian tapping and like pulling out those emotions and sort of rewiring your brain. And for my wife, she used the emotion code, which was, is kind of like a variation of that using magnets to help just like pull out those emotions. And then a lot of somatic healing as well. Excellent. Cool. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. So um, where are you now with pharmaceuticals? Because there, it, it's one of the big challenges with everything that's been going on is sorting through all of this information and our brains in, in order to simplify that want to just label things categorically. Yeah. And, you know, we want to put a label on all vaccines are good or all vaccines are bad or all pharmaceuticals are good. All pharmaceuticals are bad. And, and I wrestle a little bit with the fact that, um, you know, there's cases like I, I look at metformin mm -hmm. and I'm like, okay, that's a pharmaceutical and, and it's used for type two diabetes, but there is some evidence that it can be helpful for longevity and having healthy blood sugar regulation, even in people that don't need it. Where do you stand? Is there is 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 there room for gray here as it pertains to pharmaceuticals? Um, yeah. and then we'll touch on V's later. Yeah. I, so first off, I'll say this: that like when it comes to something like type two or type one diabetes and like the need for insulin or other things that are you know pharmaceuticals, right? Pharmaceuticals can be a broad catch-all term, and I think that. Um, there are many examples of people thriving with the use of pharmaceuticals. Another mm -hmm. example of this is like ketamine, where I know people who've done ketamine therapy and they have, you know, tremendous success using ketamine to deal with some of the emotional or mental issues that they're dealing with. And ketamine yeah. can be considered a pharmaceutical too. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to be absolutist and say that all pharmaceuticals are bad, but overwhelmingly pharmaceuticals are bad. And then overwhelmingly also, there are natural approaches to healing that far that are far superior to what pharmaceutical companies offer. Mm -hmm. And my knowing that pharmaceutical companies are simply taking what is found in nature and either, you know, manipulating it or making a synthetic version of it and then mm -hmm. mixing it with uh, toxins to some degrees, to a large degree when it comes to vaccines, especially. Mm -hmm. um, I just look at the alternative in getting back to a natural way of living. And that is the more beneficial approach to, you know, healing symptoms or even for people who struggle with chronic condition and chronic conditions, man managing symptoms of mm -hmm. disease. And I will say this, this is one where I will make an absolute statement. All vaccines are bad. There I think is, so. I think so too. Yeah. There is absolutely no reason to ever receive any of those products because the foundational premise for those products, virology is entirely pseudoscientific and unproven. So mm -hmm. not like people arguing over the efficacy or the safety of vaccines, I've come to the position that that is playing their game on their playing field. And that mm -hmm. is a battle where you won't be able to win because they'll always be able to come up with a new so-called virus that they need 
to have this injection that they only that they're the only ones that has that they have the solution for and we can't possibly come up with a solution for it. Yeah. And when you look at when you look at the data of of I mean there's dozens of cases with individual vaccines where you look at when they were rolled out. Almost always it was after herd immunity was already achieved. And then there was a marketing and publicity campaign to give that credit for herd immunity to the injection. Yep. And 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 it, it, it happens time and time again where I, I was having a hard time even finding an example where that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, you know, then it starts to become, all right, well, then what are these things? Yeah. Well, and to touch on another thing there too, that sort of leads one to ask, well, what is herd immunity when you have the understanding that there is no proof of these submicroscopic pathogenic particles, which I'm happy to get into extensively because I've kind of obsessed over that over the last two years. But speaking specifically as an example of what you said, measles, right? The trajectory Mm -hmm. of the mortality rate from measles from like 1910 through uh, the very beginning of the 1950s was on a steep downward trend. And I think that that can be chalked up to um, access to acute healthcare, access to adequate nutrition at that time. A lot of um, our supply chains were being established that I now think are bad because that has led to the point where we're not self-sustainable and we're relying on food that is mm-hmm. shipped from elsewhere. But nonetheless, a- access to um, adequate nutrition, access to acute healthcare, refrigeration, proper mm-hmm. sanitation practices, yeah. you're not sh- like drinking the same area that you're shitting, you know what I mean? Right. Um, it led to the uh, decrease in the mortality of some of these diseases. And just like you're saying, 19, I want to say 1954 or 1952, the measles vaccine was introduced and the CDC and other so-called health institutions will take a snapshot of that graph from like 1951 through 1954 and show that the measles vaccine is what caused the downward trend in, mm-hmm. in measles mortality. But then if you bring in the context of the previous 50 years, it was already on a steep downward decline. Mm-hmm. And the measles vaccine was completely irrelevant in terms of um, helping solve any of these disease issues. So, mm-hmm. yeah, well, let's let's get into virology a little bit. And I'm particularly interested in this because I've I've had Lyme disease twice, or at least what wow. was what was labeled as Lyme disease. The first time I saw 12 doctors trying to figure out what was wrong with me. Um, finally, the 12th one was a Lyme literate physician. This was in, in 2011. Um, came back positive for both Borrelia burgdorferi and a whole bunch of different um, co-infections. And I, I did a ton of ozone, intravenous light therapy, so on and so forth. I got bit again in October of 2020 passed out for like 24 hours, couldn't even get out of bed, did another test. Everything was lit up. That time I went to Germany and did extreme whole body hyperthermia where they cooked me at 107 degrees for two hours. I did a bunch of intravenous heavy metal chelation for mercury and aluminum and a whole bunch of other stuff uh, because I didn't want to go through all of the, the ozone treatments. Then mm-hmm. when you look at certain, certain books like Lab 257 that talks mm-hmm. about uh, Lyme being used as a bioweapon created on, uh, you know, on Plum Island, uh, off the East coast and, and, and how it sort of, um, permeated and spread from the seventies and eighties to, to now where it's all over the country and all over the world, really. Um, I, I, I've, I've looked a lot and said, okay, it certainly seems like 
bacteria, at least some bacteria can cause health issues. You know, we, we go back and we see things like the Tuskegee experiments where, where the government got caught injecting syphilis, which is the bacteria that's probably most similar to Borrelia burgdorferi, the, the bacteria responsible for Lyme mm-hmm. disease. They got caught injecting that into the African-American population. And when, when you've gone down some of these rabbit holes, like you and I have, you realize they don't, these, these, um, individuals and organizations responsible for a lot of this stuff, they, they don't discriminate by race. Mm. If they're doing it to black people, they're doing it to white people. They're doing it to Asians, Mexicans. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a humanity thing. And for someone that I never had a tick bite, I never had a bullseye rash the first time I got it. I've asked questions of, did I give it to myself by taking their, their, their V's Mm -hmm. by taking their shots, you know? So can you talk a little bit about the virology and also how you reconcile between um, the role of, of, of quote unquote viruses and bacteria in pathogenesis? Yes, absolutely. And, and so I'm going to set aside for a moment bacteria, fungi, mold, um, parasites. Even, even parasites. I'm going to set those aside for a second because that's a separate discussion. Although mm-hmm. those do fall in the camp of what is colloquially, I can never say that word, colloquially known as germ theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll say this prior to, to starting. I think in almost every case, naturally occurring bacteria are akin to a firefighter at the site of a fire. They are there to decompose decaying tissue and toxins and return them back to the earth. They're mistaken as the cause of the issue because they're at the site. When it comes to something like Lyme or um, some of these more autoimmune identified issues that people deal with that are said to be caused by you know some type of parasite or some type of like even H. pylori as an issue mm-hmm. or some type of bacteria like Lyme, that's a conversation that is like a, a whole separate rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And um, I highly recommend checking out Dr. Steph Young's work on Lyme. And I think she's actually writing a book on it right now. Yes. Um, but for the sake of viruses and virology, in order to make a claim about something and say that something has any sort of action or that something has any sort of characteristics, you need to clearly show that that thing exists. If I were to come on your show and start talking about the, um, the, this is even before the scientific method, you have to show that it exists before you can even apply that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And that's where we're about to go with this. So if I were to start making claims about the weight of a unicorn or the color of a unicorn's hair or the, the, the hoof prints that unicorns leave in my yard, or if I were to find some hair in my yard and say that that's evidence of a unicorn, any of those things are assigning characteristics or pointing to effects and saying that that is um, caused by a unicorn, you would look at me and say, where the hell is the unicorn? Mm-hmm. Like in order to say that any of these things are caused by a unicorn, show me the freaking unicorn. Mm-hmm. There are other explanations for these things. And in that example of a unicorn, I think virtually everyone that hears that, they'd say, yeah, of course, you need to have proof of the unicorn first before you can assign characteristics to it, talking about its weight, its height, its color, its type, mm-hmm. its genetics, or anything like that, or any of the so-called effects of a unicorn, right? So 
what's frustrating is people will understand that or you could use an analogy of Santa Claus. You could use what Dr. Tom Cowan did in his book, The Contagion Myth, the analogy with a ping pong ball and a brick wall. But when you apply the same logic to virology, people will come up with thousands and thousands and thousands of excuses. And it's because this idea of disease being transmitted from person to person via these submicroscopic pathogenic particles is so embedded into our psyche and so mm -hmm. embedded into... I don't even want to say Western culture and to cultures all over the world. It's a, it's a thing that spans all of the earth at this point, and it is entirely pseudoscientific. And here's why. The way that they isolate, in air quotes, isolate viruses is completely different than the common um, use of the word isolate. And what I mean by that specifically is that isolate according to... Here, I'm going to pull it up real quick. I have the Webster's, uh, Webster's Dictionary definition on this presentation. Yeah. So the Webster's Dictionary definition of isolate is to separate from another substance so as to obtain in a pure or free state. And that's what virtually all of the world knows isolation to mean, right? Mm -hmm. You separate one thing from all other things, right? Mm -hmm. But the way virologists, quote, isolate a virus is a variation of the following process. They, uh, they take snot from a sick person. They assume that there is a virus inside of that snot. They never validate there is a virus inside that snot. All electron micrograph images, all these pretty little pictures that you see from various scientific institutions all over the world of so-called viruses are coming from this experiment that I'm about to describe. They are never coming directly from the fluids of a person who is sick right? So a person has a presentation of symptoms. They take snot from that person. They assume that there's a virus inside. They add it to what's called viral transport medium. And the ingredients of viral transport medium are, um, there's, there's variations of it. There's one that's created by Thermo Fisher, which contains gentamicin and amphotericin B. Gentamicin is an antibiotic. Amphotericin B is an antimycotic. Um, and they, they essentially take that snot and put it in that substance that has these other, you know, toxic substances present. They then mm -hmm. take that and add it onto a monkey uh, cell, which is called a Vero E6 or a Vero CCL81 cell culture. And that is coming from an adult green monkey. And ironically, amphotericin B and gentamicin, if you were to look up the uh, side effects, common side effects for both of those two drugs, you will find that in amphotericin B, acute renal failure is one of the most common side effects. So think about that. They're taking amphotericin B that is in viral transport medium, putting it on a monkey kidney cell. And then in the culturing process itself, they're adding more amphotericin B and more gentamicin. And they say that's to keep the, the cell culture itself sterile, to keep out microbes of various types. <clears throat> They'll also add trypsin and then penicillin, streptomycin, fetal bovine serum. And they're, then, they're sure adding a lot of stuff for a process that's supposed to be isolating. Correct. Exactly. Which is why it's ironic because it's the exact opposite of isolation. So they're adding all these substances onto the cell culture. The, the cell breaks down into a bunch of fragments experiencing what is called the cytopathic effect. They then take those fragments and prepare them for electron microscopy, which involves 
heating, dehydrating, staining, bombarding with electron beams. And if I were to do that to you in your natural state, I guarantee you wouldn't look like what you looked like in your natural state, right? Mm -hmm. And then they produce these pretty electron micrograph images. They point to the particles on those electron micrograph images and they say, voila, these are these, these little particles here are virus particles. This must have been what was inside the fluids of a sick person. This must have been what caused the cell to experience a cytopathic effect, which again is a cell breaking down to a bunch of fragments. And it's entirely pseudoscientific and it's pseudoscientific by definition because- Dare, the, dare I say fraudulent. Fraudulent. It is fraudulent at the least in, um, you know- <laughs> Pseudoscientific for sure as well, because the definition of pseudoscience is anything that is claiming to be scientific, but does not adhere to the scientific method. The scientific method is very specific. Yeah, you have an observed phenomenon that you see not occurring in nature naturally without any human intervention or human manipulation, something that you see naturally occurring. And in the case of disease, you could say, okay, there's an observed phenomenon of multiple people getting sick in the same space with similar symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. That's observed phenomenon. That's a, that's a real observed phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And then you would try to ascertain what the cause of that observed phenomenon is. And maybe you come up with a hypothesis that it's the, the fluids of a sick person that is causing this phenomenon, right? And then you would try to conduct a series of experiments to see if those fluids are causing people to get sick. You'd have proper control experiments. In that case, the fluids would be the independent variable. But specifically with virology, and actually, let me say this real quick. With fluids of a sick person, they have done multiple experiments trying to expose healthy people to fluids of a sick person. And in fact, in one of my presentations that you can look up on YouTube called Debunking the Nonsense, my buddy Mike Stone has highlighted I want to say 12 studies in which they have taken fluids from a sick person, tried to expose healthy people via various methods, via injection, via ingestion, via just being exposed to these sick people. And in literally every case, they could not get people sick with the fluids of a sick person. So let's set that aside. And then with going on for over a hundred years, I mean, they were trying to do that with the Spanish flu. They were mm -hmm. taking snot and blood and these different bodily fluids from sick people and sick animals. And, Every attempt was unsuccessful in transferring contagion via those fluids. Yeah, specifically speaking of that one, that was the Rosenau experiments from 1918 through 1919. And they were conducted at two different quarantine stations uh, during the height of the Spanish flu. And they took 100 volunteers from the Navy. They inoculated um, liquids or, or fluids that were taken from Spanish flu, Spanish flu patients directly into them. They took blood from Spanish flu patients, injected it into them. They had them um, go into Spanish flu wards and had people open mouth cough into their face, shake hands with them. Mm -hmm. And Rosenau was quoted as saying, after he found that literally none of the volunteers in those experiments got sick. And, and think about that. A hundred dudes, right, at the height of what is said to be the most deadly pandemic ever, taken and exposed via injection, via having fluid swabbed in the back of their throat, having conversations in Spanish flu wards with patients on quarantine stations. None of the volunteers in those experiments got sick. And Rosenau is quoted as saying, we entered the outbreak with a notion that we knew the cause of the disease and we're quite sure we knew how it was transmitted from person to person. Perhaps we, if we have learned anything is that we are not quite sure what we know about the disease. And so a quick thing, I want to finish up by saying, I know this is long-winded. It's the, helpful. 
Yeah. The, the independent variable when you're trying to determine what is the cause of something is the most important piece. That is your presumed cause of the mm-hmm. observed phenomenon, which is the dependent variable. So your presumed cause is the independent variable. In virology, they have no independent variable because in order to even begin with experimentation, you have to have the thing you think is the cause by itself to then vary and manipulate to see if it produces the effect, the observed phenomenon, the dependent dependent variable. And again, every quote isolate of a virus comes from the process where they assume that there is a virus inside the fluids of a sick person. They then take that fluid and add it on a cell culture alongside all of those substances, which are confounding variables. The cell culture breaks down to a bunch of fragments. They take those fragments and then will conduct a series of experiments where they then, you know, inject them into a freaking like monkey or inject them into a mouse. And then it Mm -hmm. causes the mouse or the monkey to experience minor symptoms, maybe sometimes severe symptoms. And they'll say, voila, this is a virus. This is proof of pathogenicity. But again, it is pseudoscientific because in order to adhere to the scientific method, you have to have your presumed cause by itself before you proceed with experimentation. They have never done this. It's Mm -hmm. always the result of that pseudoscientific process of quote viral isolation. They take the byproduct of that and then use it in a series of experiments. But again, confounding variables on top of confounding variables, gentamicin, amphotericin B, fetal bovine serum, a monkey kidney cell. There's so many things that are, that are added to that experiment. It's, it's nonsense. And many, many of them cytotoxics. So I'm I'm curious because, and guys, if you're getting value from this, like these, these episodes where we're having these conversations, they get censored. And the best way for us to get this information out there is by you guys sharing it with one another. So if you're, if you're finding value in this conversation, you know, of course, go to the way, uh, fwrd.com, which is Alex's website, Alex's website. And, um, you know, you can get membership there. And, and that's a good way of showing your appreciation for the work he's doing. And of course, share this conversation with people that that might find this interesting and helpful, because a lot of people don't know this stuff. Now, Alec, um, there's a lot of virologists who have gone through medical training, and many of them smart people. Mm-hmm. Why? is this allowed to perpetuate and, and and continue to take place? Why aren't people saying, hey, why don't we just take the the snot culture from the sick person and go to uh, start, start looking for the virus in that medium rather than putting all these cytotoxic additives in if we're trying to isolate? You know, what's their justification, right? There's, there's a lot <laughs> of smart people in this field that are going along with this farce. Yeah. Um, I want to preface this by saying that I, I don't think that all virologists are quote in on it. I don't think that at all. There's no way they could be. No way. Absolutely I, not. Same, like, same, same with doctors. Like when people are like, well, do you, yeah. not, I, I have a ton of respect for doctors. We're, there's a lot of doctors that go through our programs and, and because they want to grow and they want to understand this stuff, this, the, I, I think it's in short, the masters they serve, but I'm curious your, your take. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it just depends on, on, the scientist, just like it depends on the doctor. I think most people in the holistic health space, when they're like, so you mean to say all virologists are in on it? I'm like, well, well, no. I mean, when it comes to vaccines, do you think all doctors are in on it? And then they'll typically answer, no, I just think doctors are misled and they're taught a certain thing and they're taught to accept that at face value from the authority that teaches them these, um, you know, 
this this information. And I'm like, it's mm-hmm. the same thing with virology. Virologists are taught this procedure to quote isolate viruses. They're taught that that's how they produce viruses. They're taught we already know that this produces viruses because it is it does give what I want to say is consistent results, right? Like this isolation process does produce consistent results, but that doesn't mean the results reflect reality and and what's actually happening. Yeah, or or are accurate in any way. And specifically to answer your question, um, you know, I and Andy Kaufman, Tom Cowan, and a lot of other people have challenged virologists and molecular biologists, immunologists to... um, we've challenged them on why viruses cannot be isolated directly from the fluids of a sick person. And we're typically given one of the four following answers. It's either the virus is too weak to isolate or purify directly from the fluids. There's not enough virus present in the fluids to isolate or purify it. A virus needs a host in order to replicate. So that's why we use the cell culture or you're not a virologist, you don't get to determine what isolation is. So the first one, the virus is too weak to isolate or purify directly from the fluids. Okay, first off, that's a reification fallacy because you're assigning characteristics to something that is fundamentally abstract and it's abstract because it has not been proven to exist in reality. But nonetheless, let's play with that for a second using their own logic. They'll say that a virus is too weak to isolate or purify directly from the fluids. They'll say that on one hand, but on the other hand, they'll say that a virus travels freely through the air, lands on a surface, survives on a surface for upwards of two to three days, makes it all the way to a body, makes it to a cell, breaks into the cell, hijacks the cell's machinery, begins a replication process that overwhelms the body, then is excreted out of that person and where it repeats the same process over again. So it's too weak to isolate or purify directly from the fluids, but then it does all of those other things and virologists hold both of those things to be true. It doesn't make much sense to me. Um, the second one, there's not enough pre- virus present in the fluids to isolate or purify it. Uh, again, if it's supposed to be this submicroscopic pathogenic disease causing agent and people that are sick have a, quote, high viral load, how is there not enough present in the fluids to isolate or purify directly from you know, the fluids of a sick person? Third one, and it also that one is also a reification fallacy because you're again assigning characteristics to something that is abstract and has not been proven to exist in nature. Third one, a virus needs a host in order to replicate, so that's why you use the cell culture. <laughs> again, a reification fallacy, assigning characteristics to something that has not been proven to exist. And again, according to their logic, what is a human body when sick? if not a giant cell culture? And what are the byproducts of that, if not you know, the exact substance that you would need in order to extract viruses out of? Like fluids from a sick person are said to contain viruses. Why would you not be able to take viruses directly from those fluids? Why do you then need to add those fluids to several other confounding variables, some of them that are cytotoxic antibiotics and antimycotics, other sources of genetic material like fetal bovine serum, monkey kidney cell, trypsin, all these substances, and then you get the results you want and then you come up with an excuse for why it works. Mm -hmm. Um, That one is also a begging the question fallacy, which I'm happy to get into in a minute. The fourth, you're not a virologist, you don't get to determine what isolation is. This is an appeal to authority. And then this is also just nonsense because evidence is evidence regardless of what your credentials are and their evidence does not adhere to the scientific method. So it doesn't matter that I'm a virologist, the scientific method is crystal clear and they don't adhere to it. Mm -hmm. Well said, well said. So let's talk a little bit about Kerry Mullis. I mean, this is the man that, that, 
created the PCR test and mm-hmm. was very public in, in stating that it should not be used uh, to to determine viral causality of disease. Mm-hmm. And he uh, he passed, perhaps not coincidentally, um, shortly before all of this uh, Agenda 21. You October know, 2019, I believe, is when he passed. October 2019. So like right as it was getting right as it was getting ramped up, possibly murdered. I'm not, I, I haven't looked into too much in, in, in his cause of death, but very possible knowing, knowing some of these individuals. Um, I, when, when you start looking at, I mean, I've ran in the past when someone was dealing with chronic fatigue, I would look for Epstein-Barr, cytomegalovirus, some of these things before, you know, before uh, March, 2020. And when my eyes were kind of opened to, to everything. And, um, and there are, all of those tests that look for the presence of a virus are PCR tests. You know, so when you look at all these different labs, they're all using this test that the inventor said should not be used to diagnose, um, you know, a, a, a viral causation of disease. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because I think that's an important talking point for people to understand this too. Yeah. So there's a really important paper to read regarding the use of PCR with so-called COVID. And it's a review paper of the Corman-Drosten papers. So the Corman and Drosten paper was the paper that set the precedent for the PCR testing protocol to be used across the world. And this paper, this review paper, again, it's CormanDrostenReview.com. That's the website for it. Um, and there's a review report published by 20 scientists from across the world highlighting that the entire process of using PCR is not only, not only does it produce false positives, the results are scientifically and diagnostically meaningless. Could there be some correlation? And this, this applies to all so-called viral illnesses. Could there be some correlation with the presentation of symptoms of disease and PCR and a positive test result? To some degree, possibly yes. But that's simply because when you are experiencing symptoms, your cells are essentially producing cytopathic effects in mass where they're shedding all of the genetic material inside of them, all the toxins inside of them, all of, all of the, you know, decaying tissue inside of your body is being flushed out. And so the likelihood that you would then, um, test positive quote positive for a viral illness via PCR, which is essentially taking snippets of genetic, genetic material and, uh, searching for those in a sample of fluid from a sick person. And if there's a match, then you're, then you're positive via PCR essentially. Right. And then the amplification process itself also increases the chances. It's like the doubling effect, right? It increases the chances that you're going to find some snippet of that genetic material found in the fluids of a sick person, the higher you increase the cycle threshold. Mm -hmm. And so I highly recommend, like I said, the Corman-Drosten review paper because that is highlights specifically why this the, the use of PCR is scientifically and diagnostically meaningless. And to speak to that, and this relates to um, the the so-called variants of SARS-CoV-2 and the 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 genome of SARS-CoV-2 itself, how they quote discovered the genome of this new virus is via this process. They extract every fragment of RNA, or in the case of SARS-CoV-2 and its foundation, they extracted every fragment of RNA that they could from a sample 
from a person who was sick in Wuhan and deemed to be sick with the so-called new disease, right? They extracted every fragment of RNA that they could from his snot, which ended up being like 2.5 million fragments of RNA. And in, in, in an unpurified sample of snot, gonna, there's going to be RNA and DNA and proteins from various sources, from like th potentially thousands of sources of mm -hmm. RNA and DNA and proteins inside that unpurified sample of snot. They extract every fragment they can. Um, they take anything that is over 150 base pairs, which would represent a more complete organism, and toss it to the side because the two alignment computer programs that they use for genomic sequencing cannot are not compatible with anything that's over 150 base pairs. So they throw all those out. They take these 2.5 million fragments of RNA and they align them via this process called alignment based on a template of SARS-CoV-1, which was isolated, quote, isolated via the same pseudoscientific process that I described earlier. So they template this against, uh, uh, you know, the, the genomic sequence, the so-called genomic sequence of SARS-CoV-1 coming from that pseudoscientific isolation process. They generated 1 million possible sequences for a, quote, new virus. And then the scientists arbitrarily voted on one of the sequences and said, this is the sequence for SARS-CoV-2. It's 90% similar or whatever it was to this, quote, genomic sequence of SARS-CoV-1. This is the sequence for a new virus. So if I'm hearing you correctly, it is not possible with the technology that exists in microscopes to look at infected blood or snot or something and see a virus. Correct. It, a virus cannot be isolated that way. Correct. So now they're doing all of this other nonsense, adding different, adding different cytotoxic substances and using computer models to come up with what people assume through the mainstream media is, oh, they looked at it under a microscope and they saw that the virus was there and that's why we're going along with all this stuff. Correct. Okay. Good to yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's pretty significant to know that, right? Yeah, pretty and, significant. And, 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 Speaking just specifically on the on the variants real quick too, how they came up with the variants is that they repeated that same process, taking fluids from a sick person or taking the byproduct of the cell culture isolation process, running it through the computer alignment program. And there's two different softwares they use. It's MegaHit and Trinity. Those are the two um, genomic sequencing softwares that they use. And they simply templated it against SARS-CoV-2, the initial quote, isolate in the initial, quote, genome of SARS-CoV-2. And if it was, you know, a certain percent similar, then they would say, oh, here's a new variant of SARS-CoV-2. I guess the question then becomes, why? why and I know like, that's... Why? That's a broad one. Why is, why is this being allowed to take place, right? I'm sure there are plenty of doctors and virologists and people like you and I that are fairly well-versed in the health space that see the nonsense and the complete lack of scientific method in this process yep. and, and are speaking out against it. And, and yet it continues to take place. And, and yet we see Bill Gates and John Hopkins and the WHO, they just simulated another pandemic with this enterovirus that, that originated near Brazil looks, looks like event 201 part two, mm -hmm. you know, where it's, it's almost like we're gearing up to continue making the same mistakes and using the same frauds to, mislead the public you know well, how do we even stop this well, here's, if, if here's, we're the issue. To here's the issue dude and this is why i'm so outspoken about the no virus thing um you know i i started speaking out this about this around 18 months ago like 
I was touching on it a little bit before then, but I really started speaking out about it pretty heavily 18 months ago. And of course, I've been censored everywhere, deleted from Twitter three times, Instagram, YouTube, Eventbrite, Campaign Monitor, PayPal, Venmo. Like I've been deleted from virtually everything except for Facebook at this point. Mm-hmm. And the the narrative at the time was starting to die down and we weren't seeing much that much about fear surrounding gain of function, lab leak phenomenon and stuff like that. And so people were like, why does it matter? We need to be focusing. It doesn't matter if the virus exists or not. We need to be focusing on the vaccines. Mm-hmm. And maybe at the time I could, I could see that argument, right? Especially because the no virus thing requires a lot of cognitive dissonance. Although again, according to the scientific method, it is, it is, irrefutable. They don't adhere to the scientific method. And they also don't adhere to logic. I've highlighted, you know, a number of logical fallacies that they, that virology relies on in order to continue its, its nonsense. But now as this COVID narrative is sort of wrapping up and people are waking up to the superficial elements of what happened and they're making Fauci the fall guy, Mm -hmm. what we see happening is uh, a ramping up of the the gain of function lab leak nonsense. Mm-hmm. And then we see these new pandemic exercises talking about another virus. Mm-hmm. And then that is, of course, going to drum up thoughts amongst the, you know, the alternative, the majority of the alternative crowd that, oh my God, they're cooking up another virus in a lab mm-hmm. and this one's going to be more deadly, right. right? And then I look at the CDC's own COVID data right? And knowing what I know about virology and viruses, the CDC's own data actually backs up everything that I'm saying, because 95% of COVID deaths had an average of four comorbidities, most being lifestyle nutrition related. 75% of COVID deaths were in people aged, uh, or no, sorry. Yes. Yeah, 75% of COVID deaths were in people aged 70 or, uh, age, age 65 and up 50% of COVID deaths were in people aged 75 and up. The um, 79% of hospitalizations were in overweight or obese people. The largest risk factors for death, and this is according to a study done by the CDC published in July of 2021, and this one's really alarming. Number one was obesity, which is not surprising. Number two was fear slash anxiety related disorders. That was the second strongest risk factor for death associated with COVID. So let's think about that fear slash anxiety related disorders. That means people who had already had a fear slash anxiety related disorder diagnosed, right? Account, or that was the second largest risk factor. That does not account for people who are in a perpetual state of fear and anxiety and simply Mm -hmm. did not have a diagnosed disorder, wound up in the hospital, wound up being prescribed uh, remdesivir, wound up being put on a ventilator and then wound up dying, right? Mm -hmm. So overwhelmingly, fear and anxiety is what has led to the proliferation of these disease symptoms, which, mind you, are also not new disease symptoms whatsoever. That's the other thing, too, when it comes to PCR. If I were to, you know, determine the validity of a new pregnancy test, I would test it on pregnant women. I would test it on women who are not pregnant, like I'm talking about very visibly pregnant women who maybe they had already had an ultrasound to determine that they're pregnant, tested on pregnant women, tested on women who are not pregnant. And then I would be able to determine the efficacy and the error rate of this pregnancy test. Mm -hmm. How do they determine the error rate and the efficacy of PCR? 
they can't. They absolutely can't because there is no quote isolated virus first off. And the second is you can't say symptoms is how you determine the efficacy of the, you know, the presentation of this so-called virus, right. And then whether mm-hmm. PCR is accurate because people who are not expressing symptoms test positive and they have never tested this against a gold standard to determine if people are sick with this so-called viral illness. Because there is no gold standard. Exactly. That's the whole point. So I know, I know I'm kind of going like <laughs> all over it, the place here, but it's but making the, sense. There's a lot to cover. Yeah. The, the point is that the reason it's so important to focus on that there is no proof of viruses altogether is because that would make the entire argument of vaccines irrelevant. We wouldn't mm-hmm. need to argue about the efficacy or the safety or any of that stuff because if the very foundation that vaccines are built upon is entirely fraudulent and pseudoscientific and not proven in reality, then it doesn't matter. We don't even like that conversation falls down immediately. You know, what we're doing by focusing on, you know, and I, I don't like I've done podcasts where I only talk about the vaccines, right? Like I, I, I have, and it's mm-hmm. important to focus on those things, but only focusing on those things, exclusively focusing on those things is akin to chopping off branches of a tree. What I'm trying to do is cut down the fucking tree. Mm-hmm. That's what myself, Tom Count, Andy Kaufman and Amanda Volmer are trying to do is cut down the entire fucking tree itself so that it's gone. Mm-hmm. Because there's always going to be new branches that sprout from this tree, you know, a la the, the, the new narrative surrounding this new pandemic exercise or any new so-called bioweapon that escapes from a lab or a new virus that is leaked or a new situation where someone eats a bowl of rabbit soup maybe next time and then like a, a virus somehow mm-hmm. springs out of that situation. But the, the point is that's why it's so important to focus on the no virus thing because It is the foundation. And second to that, but I would actually even say more important than focusing on the no virus thing is getting to the understanding that symptoms of disease are your body's healing response. Like I'm, I'm like feeling kind of stuffed up right now. You might notice that my voice is kind of raspy. I'm feeling, I'm experiencing a detoxification. That's the way that I look at it. My Mm -hmm. body is, um, detoxifying itself. And that's all symptoms are your, your body heats up. So the water in your body, the structured water can become less viscous so that you can flush out toxins and flush out the decaying tissue inside your body. And that's what symptoms are. They're not a bad thing. Your body's doing what it was designed to do. Mm -hmm. Can we talk a little bit about then, then what, what makes us ill? Yeah. Because, um, I mean, there's, there's some strong connections here where, 5G, the, the millimeter waves and towers were rolled out in Wuhan. And there's a, a pretty strong connection between a lot of parts of the world where that technology was rolled out. And then the media jumped on it and said that it was it was COVID spreading. Yeah. Um, and, and there's so many different people in the truth community, it's difficult to even ascertain who's speaking the truth. You know, there's some great documentaries that were done by people like Mickey Willis, but I I, I saw him talking a lot about this lab leak theory. I didn't see him talking a lot about the massive changes in our electromagnetic environment. So can you talk a little bit about what makes us sick and the role that you believe all of this uh, wireless electrical technology may be playing in that? Yeah. So... Um, first, let me answer this by saying, and I've done this so many times, I had like a video that went viral, but I hear this a lot and it's still important to highlight this because it 
inevitably people ask it. So if not a virus, what's making us sick? And then I'll get into specifics. Yeah, and how do, how do two people get together and one was yes. sick and then the other gets sick? Because that's yes. where a lot of people are like, I, I, I know it was a virus. I, I, I went to a party and someone was sick and then everybody at the party got sick. Yeah, which, is, which, which by the way, is an affirming the consequent logical fallacy itself because that's pointing to an effect in asserting that you know that that is proof of the cause without ever the cause ever being established to exist or to cause that phenomenon you're saying happens, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's what I'm affirming the consequent logical fallacy is. But, um, you know, people will ask, if not a virus, what's making us sick? And perpetual fear, poor nutrition, herbicides, pesticides, stress, overuse of pharmaceuticals, poor sleep, poor gut health, heavy metals, toxic skin products, EMF exposure, dental procedures, toxic air fresheners, toxic cleaning products, lack of community, overuse of antibiotics, overconsumption of sugar, pasteurized inorganic dairy, fast food, processed foods, refined grains, lack of time in nature, lack of exercise, poor detox pathways, unhealed trauma, seed oils, toxic tap water, lack of minerals, soda, overconsumption of alcohol, smoking, poor oral hygiene, chemtrails, vaccines, and so many other things. Mm -hmm. So that's the very like broad way of saying like, there are so many other things that are causing us to be sick. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to the presentation of, of COVID symptoms, I wish I had the list pulled up in front of me. Maybe I can Look it up real quick and you can edit this out or not. Um, sure. CDC symptoms. COVID. Here we go. So according to the CDC on their website, symptoms of COVID are fever, chills, cough, shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, fatigue, muscle body aches, headache, new loss of taste or smell, sore throat, congestion or runny nose, nausea or vomiting, diarrhea. Those are the symptoms of COVID. Now, I want anyone listening to this to point me to a symptom on that list that is a new symptom none none and i and i will say this as a as a small minor caveat the specifically the loss of taste and smell thing is where it gets a little bit tricky because if you look up if you look at archived google searches i don't even know if these are still available on like the wayback machine but if you looked up archived google searches of symptoms of a cold prior to COVID or loss of taste and smell symptoms prior to COVID, you would find that one in three people who had the common cold experienced loss of taste and smell. We also know that zinc deficiency leads to loss of taste and smell. And this is a big one to highlight. Prolonged exposure to non-native EMFs mm-hmm. and the, 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 the effects of exposure to non-native EMFs are cumulative, meaning that they get to a point where they, your body reaches a threshold and then you experience symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely lead to loss of taste and smell. There are mm-hmm. several studies that have, I don't want to say proven, but 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 indicate that there is some correlation between loss of taste and smell and exposure to non-native EMFs. D- damage to the to the central nervous system, a yep. form of neurodegeneration. I mean, I, I know a guy who was struck by lightning. There's tons of examples of this too. I know a guy who was struck by lightning and couldn't taste or smell for like a month and a half. Yeah, it's it's an extreme example and a little bit different than non-native EMF, but we, we do see that, it's still that an electrical happen. phenomenon. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's essentially what exposure to non-native EMFs is, right? Mm-hmm. So, so knowing that, and knowing that there are several studies that have been done that are epidemiological studies, and you know you have to be careful not to call these scientific studies because they're not like like just because a study is peer-reviewed doesn't mean scientific. Scientific means you have adhered to the scientific method and a lot of things claiming to be scientific are not scientific. Mm-hmm. Um, there are studies though, and studies aren't bad. It's just when they're claiming to be scientific, that's, that's a whole nother conversation. But the point is there are several studies that have been done that are epidemiological that are looking at uh, the, 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 um, 
areas of people testing positive for COVID, which is which is meaningless, but nonetheless, people experiencing symptoms in mass and the rollout or the prevalence of millimeter wave technology in those areas. Mm-hmm. And, some, and in some other cases, just the prevalence of electro, electromagnetic fields in those areas. And there's been strong correlations between symptoms of illness and uh, in, in given pockets across the world and the use of or the prevalence of millimeter wave technology and other electromagnetic fields and other exposure to EMFs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I can say for sure that since early 2020, I've experienced more periods of fatigue, uh, depression, brain fog, yeah. lack of motivation. Um, if I go to like a big city and, you know, I was in Miami a few weeks ago, stayed there at a house with one of my buddies, my whole body hurt like the entire time. And then yeah. on the way back, uh, we've got, we've got some land in, in Appalachia and I camped out on our land on the way back home. All the symptoms went away. This has happened. <laughs> yeah. This has happened a dozen times now over the past few years. Like if I start feeling a lot of these things where I'm like, gosh, what, what the fuck is wrong with me? If I go primitive camping, um, in an area with no cell service, the symptoms are gone within a couple of days. And that's so interesting, dude. And like, it, it's, this this relates back to um, how my wife and I were eating prior to us reversing like her symptoms. Because I so I'll say this: I didn't have any, you know, noticeable issues, so to speak, physically prior to switching to a holistic approach to health. And I was a really athletic, dude, right? Um, and then once I introduced some of those things back into my life, like if I eat a shit ton of gluten. Mm-hmm. Um, or if I eat a shit ton of you know, like inorganic, uh, you know, highly pasteurized dairy, mm-hmm. homogenized dairy, I feel like shit. And it's like, mm-hmm. did I always feel like that? And like, now I just feel way better. And that's what I think of when I, cause like in our house, we have a little area with Wi-Fi, but this computer that I'm on right now is hardwired. Our TVs Mine have too. Apple TVs on them and they're hardwired as well. Mm-hmm. And we are basically don't have Wi-Fi, and we turn that little area of Wi-Fi off at night completely. Mm-hmm. And like when I go to places that have high amounts of Wi-Fi, I feel like shit, and I have mm-hmm. really bad brain fog. I can't think. I can't even freaking form sentences. So it's like, totally. was I always like that, or is it now that I'm no longer around them, my body's not adapting appropriately? Because that's the other thing to think about too. And this is more open-ended, and I'm, I've just been thinking about this myself. Like when it came to the you know, electrification of the earth. If you've read the invisible rainbow and looking at the the ties between the Spanish flu and the prevalence of radio waves blanking the earth for the first time that led to, mm-hmm. you know, the, the hypothesis is that led to a lot of people dying. And mm-hmm. I don't discount that. It's like, okay, then these other people have, they adapted now to radio waves. So it's like, are we, and I, I don't want to say this cause I don't want to, but is it, can, can human beings adapt to millimeter wave technology? Which, which mm-hmm. then leads you to ask, like, is that what we want, though? Is that is this way of living what we want? And what I shared with a discussion with my friend Renat Strahlhofer, who's the founder of We Are Not Sam, I was like, what how I want to live is like an Amish dude, except for with cooler clothes, and I want to still be able to FaceTime my friends and, and get on you know mm-hmm. podcasts like this from time to time. But aside yep. from that, live like an Amish dude. So it's like Me a too. balance of the two. So I've been reading I, a book called Living Without Electricity, Lessons from the Amish. That sounds awesome. I'm going to have to put yeah. that on my list of books. I'm actually going to write yeah. that down right now. But it's just, it's brought up all these questions. It's like, do I think human beings can adapt to this technology? Yes. 
do I think that that's a slippery slope? Yes, absolutely. And is it like, is it leading us to a life that is more aligned with nature and, and what it means to be a human being? Fuck no. And that's mm-hmm. the issue. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, it, I mean, I've even tossed around the idea just because I, I enjoy exploring things and, and in many ways we're living in sort of like a sci-fi movie right now. It's better than any movie I've ever seen. And I I've talked with a lot of people, especially like since getting land in, in Appalachia that have seen what they would call, you know, unidentified flying objects, even a woman down there. I rented, um, I rented a cabin on their property and she told me a story about her being visited by uh, a gray alien when she was a little girl fascinating story that just blew yeah. my mind. I won't, I won't go into it now, but when you see this radical increase in exposure to electricity that we're experiencing, it's happened with, with power lines. It happened with radio. It happened yeah. with radar and, and Arthur Furstenberg goes into all of that in, in the invisible rainbow. But what we're seeing now is testosterone and, um, testosterone levels dropping, you know, yep. tons of hormonal issues. We're seeing, we're seeing fertility both in men and women drop. We're seeing yep. hair loss, decrease in muscle mass, decrease in size, all of these things. There's a part of me that scratches my head and I'm like, well, what if, what if those, those quote unquote gray aliens that some people have experienced? I haven't, I've never seen one, but this is just my inquisitive mind. What if those gray aliens are what human beings would be like in a thousand years of acclimating to high amounts of radiation? We'd be hairless. We'd be small. We'd be part of this hive mind where we don't have a lot of agency over our own life. And we're controlled by some sort of centralized information hub. Yep. Yeah. This, this is interesting because, you know, back in the initial stages of my awakening, I inevitably went down the rabbit hole of researching all the declassified CIA documents on the CIA's reading room and like the mm-hmm. Mars remote viewing stuff and project mm-hmm. Stargate. And then wound up looking into David Wilcock and Corey good and all these figures who I, I, I do think that they're fraudulent, but I don't, I think there's something to the, the UFO phenomenon. I don't know if it's like legit aliens from other worlds or if they're beings from other dimensions or maybe they live here in lands that we're not allowed to explore which that gets into the whole like flat versus round earth thing which is totally like I, yeah i'm exploring the, that heavily they, they, they exist perhaps in the outer space yeah, outer you know, space or extraterrestrial Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Because I've been exploring that pretty heavily lately too. Because I used to make fun of flat earthers and then I looked at some of the, you know, a, a lot of the same logical fallacies you'll see people use with virology, you'll see people use for for the for the globe. And I don't uh, I don't uh, know where I sit on it yet. I, I don't I don't either. And I sort of feel like knowing knowing the uh the false binary and that pattern that's been used with a yeah. lot of things. Like it probably isn't flat and it probably, I certainly don't think it's a spinning ball in space, but when, you know, if, if we know that, let's say the earth were round there, there's a curvature of eight inches per mile squared. Yes. And now that we have these P 900 Nikon cameras. You, you can, can see, see a way beyond that hundred miles offshore, yeah. right? That would not be possible if there was a, uh, if there was a curve and where else do you see water not going level you know where exactly. does water curve anywhere in nature yeah you could say a droplet but like come on right well the uh, other uh, one too and i can't believe i didn't like realize this because i took thermal fluid systems when i was at west point i majored in systems mm-hmm. engineering so we had to have like a baseline uh, understanding of other facets of engineering so i took thermal fluid systems which is like uh, a piece of physics slash mechanical engineering mm-hmm. and 
we, we learned, um, that like, like we learned about gas pressure and it's, it's like a law of physics that gas, gas pressure cannot exist next to a vacuum without a container. And we're said to be in a gas pressure system right. existing next to the vacuum of space mm -hmm. without a closed container, yet yes. we can't find one example in reality. It literally defies laws of physics um, because that's that's a known thing that that I forget the exact law that it's called. I think it's just a, one of the laws of thermodynamics. But Exactly. It's like I was flying a few months ago and there were these smokestacks that were producing smoke like miles into the sky, mm. straight up, mm -hmm. which is sort of like what you're talking about. If we're on this spinning ball, at what point do those smokestacks no longer go straight up because the earth is spinning? The earth from which they originated is spinning, yeah, right? And, or are yeah. you saying somewhere up there, there is a firmament well, well, or that's something what, that's, that's allowed? That's what I'm saying. Like in order to exist in a gas pressure system next to mm -hmm. a vacuum, you have to have a closed container. Right. You have to. Like there's, there's several videos that are pretty funny. I think Eric Dubay did one where he went up to multiple professors of physics and asked like, so do you know of any examples of a gas pressure system um, existing next to a vacuum without a closed container? And they're like, no, that's like, that's impossible. Impossible. It's like, yeah. okay, well, what about earth? We, we live in a gas pressure system and we're existing next to the vacuum of space, according to, you know, their hypothesis on what, <clears throat> how the earth works. And these professors are kind of just like, oh shit. Like mm -hmm. they hadn't thought about that before. But yeah. anyway, so on the are you saying are you saying they lied about the moon landing too? Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. All, yeah. all this stuff, it all falls apart. <laughs> I'm absolutely saying they lied. I'm about absolutely that. saying that they, I can't even get service in parts of North Carolina. <laughs> yet they landed on the moon and we're like, oh, we did it, guys. And everyone's like, yeah. On a landline phone, the president's talking to the astronauts. Yeah. Let's <laughs> like, play golf. Let's play golf. Okay, this checks <laughs> Absurd, out. Man. Oh man! And then like the the videos of the astronauts coming back and being interviewed by everyone, and they just look like fuck, dude. Yeah, like, they don't look of, happy. They don't look like they just like we're the first human beings to set foot on another like body. Like what? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> what? yeah. They look like fuck, man. This sucks. Sure. Why do I have to go in front of these cameras? So, um, but it, it's relevant because when people start realizing the number of times that we have been lied to. We can start, we can get, come to a point where we say, all right, I won't be fooled again, or I'm yeah. not going to blindly believe the narratives that proven liars are, are, are feeding me. Dude. And oh, this is, this is something that I've been so fascinated with lately. Um, I like this cause you've, you've brought me back into my like, like fun space. Cause I was talking about very <laughs> sciencey stuff, but, um, are, are you familiar with Larkin Rose? Mm -mm. Okay. So Larkin Rose is a voluntarist and, and voluntarism is a political societal ideology that, that says every interaction between any man, woman, organization, entity requires the voluntary consent of both parties. Mm -hmm. So essentially what that means is you have no external authority over you whatsoever unless you agree to it. Right. Unless you come into a contract and agreement with those external authorities and say, yes, I want you to be able to do to rule and dominate over me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, Larkin's book, Most Dangerous Superstition, is one of the best books I've ever read. <clears throat> and what it discusses is that 
one of the main sources of violence, of disease, of division, of of all the atrocities amongst the world throughout history is the belief in authority, the belief in authority. And two experiments that he touches on that you're probably familiar with and your audience is probably familiar with, but it's still important to bring up are the ash experiments and the Milgram experiments. So the ash experiments dealt with conformity to groupthink. And they what, what the results of that experiment found was that um, 75% of people, I think, I think it's 75%, roughly 75% of people in the experiments would conform to groupthink even if what they were seeing in reality did not match, you know, what that group was thinking, they would still conform. Mm. Right. And then the other experiment is the Milgram experiment. And that dealt with obedience to authority and how that experiment was conducted. They brought someone in, um, they brought these subjects in and they didn't realize that they were part of the experiment. They thought they were the ones helping to conduct the experiment on this electrical shock treatment. Mm. And they were given orders to press this button to shock people in another room that they could only hear the voice of. And these voices started screaming out like, oh, fuck, stop. I'm, I'm like, this is so painful. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And they would look up at the authority and say like, are you sure I'm still good to go? And they're like, oh yeah, they signed up for this. They're totally good. And they would shock to the point that they would no longer hear the voice. 65% of people would do this. Oh right? my and that's gosh. Obedience well, that, to authority. That and, explains a lot. <laughs> yeah, explains a lot, man. And his, his whole premise is that authority itself is an illusion. It's entirely an illusion because it is only real as we make it. I mean, everything that's happened over these last two and a half years quite literally required that we give our consent to it. Mm -hmm. And even for the people who are awake to what's going on and, you know, may have not complied, they still believe that this authority is legitimate. They may disagree with its form. They may disagree with the, the measures that that authority uses and the directives that that authority uses, but they still believe that that authority has legitimacy. And mm -hmm. what, what Larkin says authority is, is essentially the right to the right to rule others, the right to dictate and give commands with the exclusive moral justification to use force against those who don't comply. And where that differentiates between like the government and a gang is that a gang believes that it has a right to do those things, but society doesn't believe that a gang has a moral justification to do those things. They think that it's a fucking gang. The difference between a gang and the government is that society thinks that government has that moral justification to use force against those who don't comply with its directives and its commands and its codes, acts and statutes and laws. Mm -hmm. And that obedience to authority is one of the largest problems. And I like it, it is completely transformed my thought process on how government works. And ironically, prior to reading this book, and I'm reading it for my second time now, um, I was already speaking like this. So when I, you know, I was like, like, we are, we are already free. I've consistently said that over the last two years, it's, it's our belief that we aren't free, that we need to petition the government, plead with the government to get our freedom right. back that is perpetuating this whole thing. And once I opened up this book for the first time, I was like, Oh my God. And then again, reading it a second time, it's like this, this book has so many gold nuggets in it. And I really think, 
don't even remember why I brought this up, but the the belief in authority is what has allowed a lot of this shit to happen. And it's, um, I think it's because you're bringing up that they've lied to us about everything. And I think that this conditioning to adhere to and be obedient to authority starts at a very, very, very young age. And one of the other things that he posits is that authority itself leads to immorality. And it's because, and I'll use an analogy of parenting. If I tell my son, no, you don't do that because I said so, rather than no, hey, buddy, we probably shouldn't steal that sucker from your sister because it was hers. And how do you think that makes her feel? Allowing him to wrestle with the implications of his decision himself, rather mm-hmm. than forcing in him into what I believe to be a moral position, actually helps instill morality in him rather than you know having it be enforced upon him and having him not have to wrestle with it to where then he um, conflates his own morality with whatever authority says is best. And that's what happens with government when you're, you, you know, take the perceptions of the majority, whether we're a democracy or a republic, it doesn't matter. It's still mob rules. It's still the majority's perceptions and ideas of what the laws, codes, acts, and statutes, which, you know, most would say are supposed to be based in some form of morality. It's taking the, the majorities and enforcing it upon not only the rest of the population, but of course the minority as well, which then mm-hmm. creates a situation where people conflate their own moral position with the the laws, codes, acts, and statutes, which may themselves not even be moral, which mm-hmm. is why people celebrate, you know, well, you, or they don't celebrate, some people do if they're really fucked up, but they'll say, well, you know, you're smoking weed. Sorry, man. Like, you know, you shouldn't have been breaking the law. It's like, no, fuck that. Is that immoral to smoke weed in my own home? Doesn't mm-hmm. matter. Like, is that harming anyone else? Is that an immoral thing? No, it's just illegal. But what does that really mean? And that's the thing is people conflate morality with what the people what what the um you know enforcers say and that's what's led to this whole covid trade taking place is like oh you must wear a mask you must do this because authority says so mm-hmm. Catherine austin fitz talks about she has the the solari report which has been a great source of of information throughout all of this and um former secretary of housing and urban development for mm-hmm. president bush and she she refers to some of what seems to be contributing to this issue as like the red button problem where there are so many people in this world who are aware of the wars and the atrocities that are taking place and a lot of the corruption and, and, and the role that drugs play in in our economy. And they recognize that those things are bad, but if you told them in order to make those things go away, if you could hit a button and make those things go away, but it also meant that your, uh, Roth IRA and your retirement accounts would all disappear. Would you do mm-hmm. it? And a lot of people say no, mm-hmm. inevitably say no. We see, we, we see that problem, that red button problem confounded with the amount of people that are up to their eyeballs in debt. You know, the yeah. whole mortgage, mortgage system, they get a, a house in a cul-de-sac that they can afford the payments on, but they can't afford to stop working or, or, yeah. or, or take any decrease in pay. And then next thing you know, they're, they're finding themselves in these moral conflicts, if they are even a moral person, yeah. where they have to then decide, well, do I feed my family or take a stand? Um, but for what's right, for what's right. Yeah. I mean, what is at, at, at the expense of using the name of your website? What is the way forward 
in, in, in your opinion, because these are very serious issues of there's a lot of people that are devoid of morality. There's a lot of people that that do just blindly follow authority. There's a lot of people that may recognize that these are issues, but they don't want to give up any of their uh, uh, funds or, or, or income. And there's a lot of people that are um, not only indoctrinated, but, you know, they've gone through 10 years of medical school and they have so much debt that they can't afford to lose their license. And, and many of these initiatives and, and protocols are being pushed down from a centralized medical industrial complex. Like, what do we even, where do we start? Dude, and this is, this is my response to that. And I'm going to use a small example, but it applies to everything that you've just said. So <clears throat> I got out of the army, thank God, before the, the COVID vaccine mandate took place. And luckily I had a vaccine accommodation, like religious accommodation for my last few years in the army, which mm. was huge. That is and huge. I knew that all this shit was going to happen. Saw the writing on the wall. And Are I you able to say how you got that or would that put? You the, can't you get them anymore. I knew they were going to stop honoring them. Like in wow. mine, luckily, because it wasn't a big deal at the time, was only approved at like the brigade level, I think our brigade chaplain was like, yeah, that's fine. Like, go ahead. You don't need to worry about it. Right. And mm -hmm. the only one that I had to get for the rest of my time in the army, because I knew I was going to get out after five years anyway, would have been the flu shot. And I was just like, okay, I'm, I have a religious accommodation, so I'm good. Mm -hmm. Um, cause in 2017, I was pumped with like 10 at once. And that was right after waking up, but I didn't know about religious accommodations or anything like that. So I was, I was given like 10 shots at once. It was absurd. Oh my um, God. And then I end up having in that arm shoulder issues. I have two screws in that shoulder now. That's that's a story for another time. Um, mm -hmm. Anyway, so I just interviewed this guy from my podcast who's a former lieutenant colonel in the army. And he got out, resigned his commission nine months before he could have retired. So you, you hit retirement as an officer at 20 mm -hmm. years and you get all your benefits for life and you basically don't have to work mm -hmm. again. You like have all the benefits. Your family has all the benefits. You're good to go. Nine months before he could have retired, he got out. And he got out sort of in, in, he resigned his commission sort of in protest to everything that's going on. And the position that he holds is the exact position that I hold. He had to make a fucking tough decision. He had mm -hmm. to go against, uh, you know, his, his desire to reach retirement that he had worked for for 20 years. He's also a West Point grad, graduating in, I want to say, oh, two or something, oh, three, no, oh, three, because he was coming up on retirement in 2023. And he had to go against his own, you know, like all these benefits that he could have received in order to do what is right, choosing the harder right over the easier wrong, which is what's in the West Point Cadet Prayer. We were taught that at West Point. And overwhelmingly, he and I both see across the Department of Defense, across the officer corps in the United States Army and all other branches of service across the officer corps in the Navy, the Marines, the Coast Guard, the Air Force, we see people choosing the easier wrong over the harder right. And it's mm -hmm. because they, you know, oh, I have a family, I have this, I'm sorry, I have to do that. So I have to adhere to and be obedient to what the authority says, even if I don't agree with it, even if I think it's wrong. Even and if it's tyranny idea is what allows authority to perpetuate. If mm -hmm. all of those people simply said, fuck no, I'm going to be authentic. Even if it's hard, I'm mm -hmm. going to do it. Authority would be done. All this tyranny, all the bullshit would be gone. They wouldn't have any mm -hmm. power over us anymore because they only have the power that we continually acquiesce because yes, it is hard. They forced us into this dilemma, this moral dilemma for a lot of people were like, fuck, do I lose my job and not be able to support my family? 
or, mm-hmm. or or do I just like you know stuff my perception to the side and maybe just get the shot one time and maybe this will all go away in mm-hmm. order to do in order to support my family and that is a tough position I you know empathize with people who are in that position like I mean I I this I do this full time I don't make a fuck ton of money doing it I hardly I, I make just enough to support my family you make and a lot less when you're censored too I can dude, you I, make can, a, I can attest to that <laughs> hey man it, you make a lot less when you're censored and that's a, mm-hmm. that's something funny in and of itself because I you know Elon Musk has reinstated Robert Malone Peter McCullough a lot of these scientists and doctors who perpetuate the germ theory lie and I still yeah. have not been reinstated I mean that that dude's building the di- digital slavery system. He's yeah. got cars that could be turned off. He's got these boxable houses that could be turned off. Like it, it's all trapped too. My God, he, show, he showed yeah. up at the the Met Gala wearing a jacket that says <laughs> New World Order on it. Like, come on, guys! And then, and then not, showed up at Halloween this year with a Baphomet costume on. Yeah, dude, like, exactly. <laughs> he's not. Not only is he not your prophet, he's like he's clearly on the other team. I said this to Renat in a conversation with her the other day because, you know, she's really knowledgeable on millimeter wave technology and 5G and the Internet of Body, Internet of Things and the uh, the Great Reset and Agenda 2030. And she's like, we both agreed it's, he's not even controlled opposition because controlled opposition implies that, like, they're speaking the truth and then mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're um, covering up some of the more nefarious things that they're doing over here. He's not even controlled opposition. He outwardly expresses that he's pro-transhumanistic, he's pro-mRNA technology, he's pro-Internet mm-hmm. of Body, pro-Internet of Things, he's a World Economic Forum young global leader, he wore a freaking bath in the costume, an NWO costume, he has Neuralink that's going to put chips in your brain, he has Starlink that's lining mm-hmm. the skies with millimeter wave technology, he's invested in the faux green agenda, Tesla, they have mm-hmm. cars that you're going to have kill switches in them. He wants to, he literally said, and I quote, we're going to turn Twitter into WeChat 2.0. WeChat is China's app that has the biometric ID attached to it. Like how much more obvious could it be that this guy is not on the side of pro health and freedom? And just because he's, you know, taken over Twitter and he's reinstated some far right political pundits and reinstated mm-hmm. doctors and scientists who reinforced the germ theory lie, he's now a champion of free speech and freedom and health. It's absolute yeah. nonsense. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, I told, I told what you. What was I talking yeah. about before that though? I don't even remember now. We were, uh, we've, we've been kind of bouncing around, but it's all, it's all, I mean, I'm enjoying the conversation. This I hope you great, guys yeah. are. <laughs> <laughs> um, guys, yeah, again, just a reminder, like go to uh, thewayfwrd.com, um, get a membership to support Alec. And if you're enjoying this conversation, share it up because it's going to get censored. That's the only way for us to, to get it out there. I mean, we, we were sort of talking about that, the, the, the dichotomy that a lot of people have feel like they justify not taking a stand because their hands are tied. Yeah. And, um, and, and I was saying, you know, what, what do we do? I mean, my take was I, we, we had a successful health business. It's still successful, but I can tell you straight up and I'll tell our listeners, like if I didn't have a stable of coaching clients that, um, I would have been out of business. Yeah. You know, we started getting censored when I started talking about EMFs as, as far back as 2016, but it really ramped up when I had on Dr. Rashid Buttar and, and, and a lot of the people that were sort of dismantling the COVID narrative. And I can say 100% that, you know, our website traffic, we can't get out of Google Dude. spam box. No, yeah. People will say, this is important. I want it in my inbox. We've got a 70,000 person email list. If I didn't have coaching clients, I would be broken on the streets. And, yeah, um, but, but you sort of look at everything that's going on. If this isn't the time to take a stand, when is, exactly. you know, yeah. and so I think that we all have justifications and reasons for not taking a stand, 
probably not the least of which is you're scared. Mm-hmm. Heck, I'm scared too. But sometimes we got to put on our big boy pants and do what's right because the alternative and continuing to comply with this stuff is much, much worse. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, I think there's probably a lot of people listening that, that see some of what we've been describing and, and maybe their eyes are opening a little bit more. Um, what needs to happen on, on, on a humanity level for us to, to change this trajectory? You know, dude, this, this is a broad catch-all statement, but it is so important. Being authentic, being authentic, living your authentic perceptions and not diminishing yourself, not, you know, lying to yourself, showing your face one way to one people and then a different face for this people and different face for your coworkers and a different face for your family, being authentic. And oddly enough, I just did a podcast episode where I interviewed a guy named Vinny Tolman who had what's called an after death experience. Um, not even a near-death experience, an after-death experience because he was zipped up into a body bag, no pulse, no breath, and was pronounced dead, body already going into rigor mortis, cold, um, turning purple. And he ventured into the afterlife. And it's, it's, it's an incredible story. And he met what he describes as his guide. And his guide taught him 10 principles about life and the first most important principle that Vinny was taught, and I like jumped out of my seat when he said this because I was like, oh my God, that's like one of my biggest messages is authenticity, like the need to be authentic in this life. Mm-hmm. And what lo- allows, you know, a lot of this stuff to continue is, like I said, obedience to authority, but you're obedient to authority because you're willing to diminish some of your authenticity, go against your own moral position, your own perceptions, your own thoughts, your own beliefs in order to adhere to what someone else who you perceive to be above you is telling you to do. So I think the way out of this, the way forward is to be authentic. What's your spiritual situation? This is a deep one, man. Minnie and I kind of talked about that in the episode. So I was, uh, after my dad got back from rehab, he, so he went to a Christian rehab center and we became evangelical Christians at that point. Prior to that, we were like, you know, go to Chris, go to, go to church on Easter and Christmas. Mm -hmm. That's how my family was too. Yeah. And then I I became an evangelical Christian around age 14. And then, um, was, was that until probably my sophomore year at West Point. So around age 20. And then I, uh, I can say this now because I'm out of the army. I started doing shrooms because that was the one thing in the army they didn't test for and had a lot of experiences really feeling oneness, you know, like like mm-hmm. feeling that and even actually seeing it, whether it was hallucinating and seeing it or tripping and seeing it. But um, I had this one experience where I was sitting in Colorado in, in this town called Crested Butte that has like no light pollution. So you can see the entire night sky. You can see Starlink flying by now <laughs> with all of Elon Musk shit. But, um, and I was looking at the the stars in the sky and then also looking at the houses on the hill that all had lights on and these intersecting like grid lines between them that also met me when I looked down. So like everything was connected via this web and I was like, oh my God, everything is one. All, all is one, all is one. And so I obsessively 
began looking like researching all is one, all is one, just like Googling it, trying to, you know, find something that matched what I had perceived. And then came across this book called the law of one. Didn't start reading. I, I found it in 2015 in that shroom experience. And I didn't start reading it though until 2018. And I read it and it profoundly changed my perceptions of everything. And so fast forward now, having read the law of one twice, started reading it a third time and it just didn't, I won't say it didn't resonate because it like it, the teachings are profound. It's, it's, it's all that, um, you know, all of us are different modulations. That's a word that uh, I don't want to say it's coined by by mentor Garrett Kramer, but that my mentor Garrett Kramer uses. We are all different modulations of the creator experiencing itself in an infinite number of unique ways. And Mm -hmm. when evil acts are committed by way of wrongly perceiving or buying into the illusion that we are separate, because when you view others as uh, a, a piece of God, just as you are an aspect of God, an extension of God, you would never, you know, commit evil acts against them, right? Because you realize that you're, by doing that, you're do- doing harm to yourself. And fast forward now, I've, my wife and I have been going to church for the last six weeks because, you know, there, there's, I, I don't know what it is yet, I'm, I'm still exploring and that's all this is, is exploring. But there, there's something about Christ that literally causes me to, to weep. Like even before I got on this podcast with you, I was just listening to worship music and just like bawling my eyes out singing. And there's something about Christ that is, that is just so profound. And maybe that's just to me. Cause I've, you know, listened to presentation by my friend, Amanda Vollmer, and she's like, uh, you know, shown some pretty compelling evidence that Jesus as the figure that we think he is never even existed. And I don't even know where I stand on that. I, I, I really don't, but there's something about Christ and it could be because of my conditioning prior to that is just so profound to me, but then it all sort of tied together on this podcast episode I just did with Vinny because we were talking about that because he was raised as a Christian. And then he had this near after death experience was subsequently revived. And then, you know, I asked him about that and he was like, no, Christ is still the way. And he he kind of said something along the lines of like, Christ is the way for me. And I think all of us at some point when we um, get into the afterlife, we don't necessarily have to bend the knee to Jesus, but it's that we, we acknowledge that Christ is, is, is like what he embodied is the path towards mm-hmm. both internal and eternal salvation. Mm-hmm. And that struck a chord with me on a deep level, because like I said, I've been going to church while also wrestling with this deeply rooted belief and an experience of oneness. And mm-hmm. Vinny also says that, and he said the 10th principle that he learned from his guide is that we are all one. He said, it's like God is the hand and we are all different fingers on the hand of God. Mm-hmm. And this, this reality is a giant playground for our souls to grow and evolve and to learn and for God to know itself more fully. Mm-hmm. And that's like identical to my perceptions. And of course it's ironic because, you know, I'm, I'm so into what's repeatable and improvable uh, and, and observable in reality. Um, like going back to tearing down, dismantling virology. And that's where I acknowledge, yes, this is a belief of mine. It's not something that I can say is true definitively across the board. It's not an objective truth, but it is something that I deeply believe that there is something about Christ that, at the least for me, he is the way. Mm-hmm. And 
And oneness is also a fundamental perception of reality for me that I do believe all things to be one. Mm -hmm. I've had a similar experience and I've talked about it in past episodes. We've had ADV on those of you guys that are listening and want to search that episode. We, we didn't, we didn't use her name to kind of avoid the censorship. So you guys could search biohacking secrets show, I think ADV and that, that episode will come up, but it, it, um, you know, I sort of had a spiritual awakening in, in 2018 and, um, and, and I've had many of those experiences where when I was living in Florida, I would go to church service and just during the music part of worship at the beginning of the service, I would just start bawling. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and, and there were a lot of times in my life where I'm like, am I emotionally broken? Cause like I didn't emote, you know, I didn't cry. Yeah. I was like, nothing moved me. And then I'd be in church bawling, like, you know, snot on my face. And I'm like, what is going on right now? So I've, I've experienced that, that a lot. And that has also given me strength in some of these trying times mm-hmm. to, to say, look, I'm not going to worry about how this is going to impact everything or how I'm going to be able to move forward or how I'm going to be able to, you know, continue to grow my business. If, if I'm being censored at every turn, I need to do what, what my creator, God, Christ want me to do, you know, Mm -hmm. and if I make that decision, uh, if I'm making these choices based on, you know, this being an eternal existence, not just our existence in this physical body in these meat suits, then at least I know I won't have regret. Um, yeah. or, or if I do have some regrets, they'll be short-lived compared to eternity. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. And this ties into w- what you're talking about is like an act of surrendering your own will or aligning your free will with the will of God. And mm-hmm. I've been reading this yeah. book that was recommended by a friend of mine named Jack, um, called the surrender experiment mm-hmm. by Michael Singer. And that book has yeah. been so profound for me. Man. I, I like, met him in Florida. Actually, I went to the, oh, the so temple, rad. the temple of the universe. And, Did you really? Oh yeah, man, yeah. that's so M- rad. M- Mickey Singer, right? Yeah. He's, uh, yeah. He's good. He's family friends with, uh, a guy that was on our team and like my right hand man. So we went, we went down there and, um, you know, went, went to a service at the temple of the universe and hung out with Sunday him and, service and, because he's yeah. still doing those, right? Oh, yeah. Dude, yeah. So at, least, at least he was as of like two years ago. It was really cool. Um, okay. And well, I mean, you've been super generous with your time and I want to, I, I want to kind of land this plane, but I think let's, um, if we were to leave people with like some actionable steps, yeah. right. That the, the people that are still here clearly are, are open-minded and courageous and willing to investigate, um, things that they thought, being true, perhaps not being true. Um, you know, and I'll share a couple of the things that I'm doing. Like I just recently purchased, we, we got land in Western North Carolina because I want to build a more self-sufficient community, sufficient way of living spring water on the property. Um, you know, I want, I, I was harvesting spring water and I vortex and structure my water and this and that. And I'm like, why not get land that has spring water on the property land where I could grow some of my own food, where mm. I can build a more modest home than I would otherwise live in if I was willing to get a mortgage, but then I don't have bank debt or any other yep. outside pressure influencing my decisions. Um, so those are some of the, the the things that that I've been doing and putting in place. And it's a bit of work, you know, but I do see those being choices that will preserve some of my sovereignty and um, and allow me to perhaps make some of those harder decisions that, that need to happen as opposed to going with, um, what's easier, but wrong. What are some of the things that you're doing and some of the moves that you're making and, or, or perhaps action steps that our audience could take? 
Yeah. Um, one is that we're growing a food forest in our backyard. We've started oh, nice. the initial steps of, of doing that, which is rad. And I understand that people are like, well, fuck, I only have like a small area in my backyard. I, I can't like, how am I going to grow a food forest? And there's solutions. My friend, uh, Jim Gale has what's called food forest abundance. Yep, where we, they had, will... we had him on, he designed a three acre food forest for us in yeah, North man. Carolina. He's awesome. Check out that episode too, guys. And then, and then please continue Alec. Yeah. So <clears throat> food forest abundance is a, is a big solution in my mind because it's, um, creating a permaculture design specifically tailored towards your property, given your climate. And Jim has 43 permaculture design specialists on his team that will create one specifically for your property. I mean, like you said, he had created a three acre one for you. They created a fourth of an acre one for us. And it's like, as, as, as they're trying to push us towards centralization, the best thing that we can do is decentralize ourselves and get back to local community and local supply chains and self-sufficiency. So all the things that you're doing are spot on. Um, I think that for people who are still stuck in the matrix, so to speak, in terms of a job, get really clear on what you authentically want to do. Because a lot of people, I mean, I, I know in the midst of my childhood trauma healing, I had no fucking idea at one point. I got to a point of, like breaking down in 2018, like I have no idea who I am. I have no idea what I want. I have no idea any of this stuff. And what what that then opened up space for is for me to step into like, what, who is Alex Zek authentically? What, like what, what does Alex Zek want to do? What does he authentically care about? And then COVID was the perfect, you know, opportunity to then begin sharing that, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I would just ask that people really wrestle with what they authentically want to do in this life and start pursuing that as a passion. And is it hard? Yeah, you may not be making as much money right away. And I like I know if I could, I would go get an engineering job right now if I wanted to and um, be making way more money than I'm making right now. But I feel more abundant now than mm-hmm. I ever would have than I ever did in the army. Um, making way less money. And it's because I'm doing what I love to do. And that's educating people on topics that I think are important. And that's exactly what we're doing with the way forward. And one thing that I want to share is we we just launched a membership and this one piece of our membership with the way forward that is really cool and has a potential to take off is we have a freedom oriented and holistic health oriented business directory. And it's different because I know mm-hmm. there's there's other ones that exist already, but it's different and it's different because over 50% of the businesses that are on our directory offer a discount to members of the way forward. So mm-hmm. with your membership, you have an actual membership card that you can print off and present to those businesses to receive a discount on services. And That's we huge. also have a marketplace on our membership portal that has exclusive discounts with a bunch of uh, holistic health oriented brands and courses on consciousness and sovereignty and what have you. And what's cool for the for the businesses that offer discounts to members of the way forward, and like I said, over 50 of them do, over 50% of them do, um, we are offering them an opportunity to be a part of our affiliate program and we will send them advertising material that they can put inside their business where people can scan or type in the, the their specific affiliate link and those businesses make commission off of getting people to be members of the way forward. So it's like this feedback loop of support. And my eventual goal is to have over 50,000 businesses as part of this business directory. And right now it's the the directory piece itself is private, 
along with all of the content and all the exclusive podcasts and breathwork sessions and, you know, expert Q and A's that we do as part of our membership. But that, that um, business directory, which is called source will be launched to the public as an app and it will be fully funded by those that are members of the way forward. And the goal is to, like I said, eventually have 50,000 businesses on board that then begin adopting alternative forms of currency to get away from the fiat and the, you know, central, uh, the, the, what's it called? The something digital central currency. banker, digital yeah, currency, central bank digital currency. Sorry. I had like a brain yeah. fart. Couldn't think. Um, well, you've but, been crushing uh, for two hours. It's all right. I know. Thank you. Um, <laughs> Uh, as as they begin to adopt those, then we have an infrastructure of businesses in place who are then able to begin adopting this alternative form of currency and supporting itself amongst this network of businesses that are on the alternative side of things. And then phase two for our website, we're creating uh, a little function of that same source. Um, we have the bit. We'll have we have the business side that we already have launched, but then we'll have what's called a tribe finder where you can type in your zip code and find other like-minded people who are also members near you. So you can start linking up in community with people and start forming solutions together. And we educate people on all things sovereignty, all things health, and then all things awareness. And that includes awareness of what's going on in the world, but internal awareness as well. Fantastic. And where can people get involved in that? Yeah, just go to our website. It's thewayforward.com. And just like you said, forward is spelled F-W-R-D. And there's a little tab at the top that says join and you can join our membership. Nice. I, I think that's huge because if you look at like what's what's going on, on on a macro level here, we've got people that are working a third of the year, sometimes even half the year for free just to pay taxes and and, yeah. and everything. And then we're sending that that currency, that money that, that, that is a stored form of energy overseas to, to China, yeah. buying all these cheap products and this and that. Where if we want to preserve our nation and our local communities, we have to start putting that money into the local communities and we have to start supporting other like-minded people that do take a stand against tyranny. Amen. And having yeah. a directory like this is a way to do that where we're no yeah. longer losing all of this energy to China and, and uh, uh, other, other countries, but we're saying, okay, how do I find some of the local businesses that have what I need in, in, you know, in my area? And mm -hmm. people that, you know, maybe have taken a ding because they took a necessary stand. I want to support those people. Yeah. So I, I, I commend you for putting together a vehicle for that to take place. Thank you, man. Yeah, it means a lot. I'm really passionate about this because I think like the potential for our, our membership itself is incredible. We have so much value, like multiple um, virtual summits that we've done. And then also in-person events that I had done with my former organization. We purchased the rights to the footage for those. So all that's on the platform. There's some incredible discussions. Like I said, breathwork sessions, all those things. But Source itself, I think, has the potential to be massive. And I'm, I'm really, really excited about it because I think it's a solution to all the nonsense that's going on. Totally. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, anything else that, that you'd like to share that you'd like to leave the, the audience with right now while you got everyone's ear? Again, I think I just want to emphasize one more time the need to be authentic and, and really... <clears throat> wrestle with and look at in your life where you don't feel free internally. Because I think a lot of people that identify as freedom fighters or, you know, um, truth seekers or something like that, that are so concerned on what's going on out there. And it, it's important to be aware of those things. 
Don't get mm-hmm. me wrong. Like it's, it's really important to be aware of those things, but are so hyper-focused on those things. Um, I think those are people who are avoiding doing the work internally to feel free. Mm-hmm. And they're looking for reasons outside of themselves why they're not free right now. Like mm-hmm. what is taking my freedom away out there? And the mm-hmm. reality is it's more often than not something in here that is inhibiting you from expressing the freedom that you already have. Yeah. I love that. I mean, I just recently, I moved Instagram off my homepage because I found a lot of the time when I was getting angry or thinking thoughts like, all these stupid fucking people are rooting it for all of us. It it was because it was after I'd been staring at the black mirror and just sharing, sharing a whole bunch of content about all the evil in the world and what, what it was doing, where I was allowing my energy and my focus to go to a negative place. And, Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think that those platforms maybe do have a have have a place, but yep. they've also become echo chambers where oh a lot God. of the people that are interested in what you're saying are already following you, and the people yeah. that aren't interested have already left. And, and they now, become so clever with their algorithms, where like I yeah. can't get outside of my echo chamber, so I hardly even fucking use like my Instagram anymore, man. I exactly. stick with my Telegram and just share what I want to share there. You too, love it. Well, thank yeah. you so much for the work you're doing, brother, and thank you for your time and energy and wisdom here. Um, I appreciate it. And, and guys, if, if you've appreciated this conversation, share it up, uh, go to the way fwrd.com, get a membership to support Alec and the, and the work that he's doing and, um, and finding some of the local businesses in your area that are, are perhaps providing goods and services that you've been going overseas for, uh, because these supply chains may not be here forever. And now is the time to start establishing those, those close knit relationships in your community. If, if we want to preserve this, this great nation and everything that it stands for. Amen. Thank you so much for having me, Anthony. This was awesome. Thank you, brother. So in early 2022, almost out of nowhere, I started experiencing massive changes in my body and mental health. My hair was thinning and falling out faster than ever before. I was experiencing mood fluctuations. I was putting on body fat, losing strength and muscle mass. I was even having a harder time remembering certain people's names and things that I knew I knew. My face looked older and I had more wrinkles and there was a noticeable decrease in my sex drive. And then one of the guests that I had on our podcast introduced me to a product called BioPro Plus that naturally boosts your IGF-1 and human growth hormone levels. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back and check out episode 265 on how to increase HGH, boost libido, and experience 68% better recovery with Dustin Baker. BioPro Plus contains a combination of powerful natural ingredients for boosting HGH, human growth hormone, and IGF-1, like elk antler, tribulus, and shilajit, all in their purest and most potent forms. What's interesting is elk antlers are the only mammalian appendage capable of continuous regeneration. These antlers grow an inch or more per day and have the fastest growth rate of any organ in the animal kingdom. I started taking one glass vial every morning and holding it under my tongue for 90 seconds before swallowing. And before I'd even finished my first kit, I was getting compliments on my skin and how I looked five to 10 years younger. You can even go back and look at some of my social media videos from earlier this year, and you'll see how big of a difference there is. Since then, my energy has increased. I feel more motivated. My libido and sex drive came back. I've been losing fat. I'm stronger and recovering faster from my workouts. And my hair is coming in thicker and even stopped falling out. If my story resonates with you, I highly recommend you try BioPro Plus for yourself. When you feel it, you'll understand what I'm talking about. And for a limited time, you can save 
save $30 on your order by going to bioproteintech.com and entering discount code biohacks. That's B-I-O-P-R-O-T-E-I-N-T-E-C-H.com and discount code B-I-O-H-A-C-K-S. 